Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, I'm so happy you're here today. I'm Harmony, the host of the Finding Harmony podcast. And today we are interviewing a longtime friend of mine, someone that I met in Mysore uh, many, many years ago. And she and I have grown up in the practice together, although she's from Long Island. Um, so we live far apart, but we've been in Mysore together many, many times. And she was uh, teaching Ashtanga Yoga full-time and also doing some mentorship with uh, guiding studio owners and yoga teachers in the business of yoga. But recently she has pivoted and become a full-time consultant for parents with children who are neurodivergent. She herself has a son with autism and so she's helping other families who have children with autism or other uh, neurodivergent special needs uh, to find tools to help heal themselves uh, so that they can truly be present and help their children thrive and also advocate for their children instead of letting stereotypes define them. And so we're talking all about um, her work uh, as a mother with a child who has a special uh, needs and special learning needs and also how she's helping other families to uh, advocate for their children and some of the things that we need to be aware of um, as mothers with children, um, all children, whether they've been diagnosed as neurodivergent or not, um, each child is individual and, again, requires uh, unique parenting skills to help them thrive. And so I think you're going to love uh, listening to this conversation with Sarah. There's so much here to learn and soak up. And you can also listen to her podcast. Uh, It's called The Full Potential Podcast, Thriving with Autism. Uh, It's a wonderful guide. And you can also get her mini guide on how to advocate for your special needs child amidst a pandemic or possibly at any time. So I would definitely check out her links. You can find all these links in her bio on Instagram. If you go to Sarah, S-A-R-A period, intonato, I-N-T-O-N-A-T-O, and just click the links. You can get all of her um, links there to her offer, her guide on how to advocate for your special needs child, as well as uh, a link to her podcast. So I want to dive right into this interview, but I also want to let you know about a retreat. I know I just did a retreat, but I'm doing a full day retreat. This one's going to be even uh, more in-depth. We're going to spend more time doing all of the things. It's called the Finding Harmony Retreat. And it will be on Saturday, April 30th. And it's going to be a whole day or afternoon, depending on where you live in the world. That's just going to be focused on you, on designing your goals, um, defining your dreams, increasing your power of manifestation, and then purposely planning the next steps to help you 
bring these dreams to life and move into your future uh, in a bold and courageous way. So you can find the full schedule online on my website, harmonyslater.com backslash finding harmony retreat all together. I hope you'll join me. It's going to be just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And if any of you were at my last retreat uh, a couple weeks ago, um, you'll know how powerful these experiences can be when we just tune into our inner source and use practices like chanting, um, pranayama, asana, as well as visualizing and journaling and just, you know, creating the life we want to live, envisioning it, and then and then planning out some steps to really bring it into being. So I hope you'll join me, uh, harmonyslater.com backslash finding harmony retreat. It's going to be a wonderful opportunity to spend time with me and connect and go deeper into your practice, but also deeper into other areas of your life, whether it's relationship goals or business goals or self-care goals, or um, goals for your family, or for yourself, personal goals. It's going to be an amazing time to just refocus and recalibrate, tune into that inner guide, that inner compass, and then really um, take some steps forward. So uh, check it out, and I hope to see some of you there. And let's just jump right into uh, meeting Sarah in Tonado. Thanks. All right. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with Russell Case. We've had another ad buy. Oh, no. Harmony. Um, so I have to, I have to say uh, the Institute of Integrative, Integrative? Integrative. Uh, integrative Nutrition enroll in IIN's health coach <laughs> training program and become a health coach in six months. That's that's not very long. Live a life you love. The that's next accelerated program. Uh, that's never good. The next generation of health coaching is here. License school. Earn your tuition back. Study anywhere, anytime. They've given us $30,000. Amazing. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. Yeah. So uh, for nice. those of you listening, that's the going rate for an ad buy. If you have something that you'd like to put on the show... At home, <laughs> speaking to Valerie here, uh, please uh, call in. Uh, Sarah, uh, actually, Sarah Antonato, how are you? Yeah, I'm great. How are you guys? I'm <laughs> doing wonderful. Yeah, it's so nice to see you too. It's been so long. We were just chatting. I think 2017 was the last time we were all together yeah. in, in the flesh, we in, were, in human yeah. form. <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! We, we weren't in New York together on tour, right? We weren't in. Yeah, we might have been. Yes, oh, we were. Yeah, yeah, maybe. we might have yeah. brushed shoulders and elbows. Maybe two thousand nineteen, maybe. Yeah, Russell, when you were reading the ad before, I was like, <laughs> Russell has Russell could be a voiceover actor. You really yeah. have such a nice voice. I have a friend who's a voiceover actor, and she's nominated for a BAFTA this year. And as you were oh. talking, I was like, wow. oh, Russell's that voice is legit. Is that Emma O'Neill? Is that who you're referring to? Because I think she got no, a, a Canadian I, award. Oh, maybe she did. This is a friend of mine named Jennifer Hale. Oh, and she's got a really right. beautiful voice. She has a lot of female superhero characters. Oh, cool. Yeah. Really oh, you goodness. I, I started volunteering for a local radio station, and I do, um, I'll do spots for them. 
and um, you know they they'll do like um, you know African American history or African Canadian history, Black History Month in Canada, <laughs> and so I did a spot for them, you know, like that, and so they, yeah, yeah, I try it. He's I'm, on the radio. I'm a I'm frustrated <laughs> in many different aspects. And there's a lot of different things I'd like to be better at. Um, no. I have an intro for those of you listening at home who may not uh, have the pleasure of knowing our guest. Uh, Mary Stuart Masterson is an actress uh, from Hollywood. She <laughs> did such films as Some Kind of Wonderful. What else was she in? A lot of Eric Stoltz films, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that right? It's uh, such a pleasure that you'd be on the show today. I know it's kind of asymmetrical uh, that, you know, <laughs> we're kind of not that big, but thank you. You're welcome. I mean, that was one of the best compliments I've received to say that I look like Mary Stuart Masterson. I'll take no, it. No, it's striking. It's a striking it. yeah. resemblance. Take actually. it for sure. And Especially I've never gotten before. Ah, and she was very young in those films as well. It's so true. Just like, yeah. As I'll is our that. guest, Harmony. At <laughs> 41 um, years old, I'll take that. Uh, Mary is a level two authorized Ashtanga yoga teacher. She teaches <laughs> autism families. Uh, the tools to heal themselves so they can thrive instead of letting stereotypes define them. Uh, she gives spirituality, advocacy, and healing to neurodiverse uh, families and children. That's so. I'm, I'm so excited you that you're here doing acting. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited that you're here. A lot. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I'm so excited Speaking to be here. Speaking of neurodiverse. <laughs> right. Your, your host, Russell Case. Um, <laughs> intonato, it says, actually. It means in tune in Italian. That's so amazing. And were you a music student? Were you naturally drawn to harmony when you met her? <laughs> no. Well, I, I was naturally drawn to harmony because she's harmony. But right. And then I, you're in I can't take tune. credit for that last name. It's my husband's family's last name. Oh. I think it's from the Sicilian side of his family. And I think his great great grandfather was a singer. Oh, oh my goodness. That's, that's so cool. And I like think a stage that name. at some point, yeah, and at some point in the transition to America, that I don't know if it was the last name before that or if it yeah. became that, but mm-hmm. yeah. Into. That's so cool. And are are you like a um what do they call the a Jap? Are you one of those? What? You're no <laughs> not Jewish? I assume she was Jewish. You look no. oh, really? you think everyone's Jewish. She's an obvious Shiksa or he then I mean an anti Shiksa is not sorry, Shiksa's not Jewish at all. That's a <laughs> no, Shiksa's not Jewish. Come on, Shiksa is a um a wasp who marries a, a Jewish man. <laughs> I live in Long Island. I probably know more of these Yiddish words than you. But I, <laughs> exactly. I'm not, I'm not I, I, I've learned a lot of them from my students over the years. And oh, I, my I, goodness. I somehow, oh. somehow when you say a Yiddish word, you, you know what it means, even if you don't know what it means. Yeah, it's like really a shamil. Like, it's so obvious what a shamil is. You're a host, so no, Russell Case, a shamil. I, I, I am a Boston native, actually. And... Um, my like a native, parents, like First Nation? Uh, not, not, I grew up in Boston. I was born, born, in, born and raised. First Nation, Boston, Appomattox. And um, my parents grew up there too, but my mom's family came from Italy. And my no. grandmother, yeah. You are the whitest I, girl I've ever seen though. But like, come well, on. My dad's, family, my dad's family is Scottish 
and they came through Nova oh. Scotia, America. Oh, New Scotland. New Scotland is Nova Scotia in French. <laughs> so there Scot- we have Scottish Italian. I'm a mutt. Yeah, I think we all are over here. We all are, right? Mutts are very expensive nowadays. Like a labradoodle, very expensive (laughs) mutt. Surprisingly expensive is what I discovered when we when we overpaid for ours. How old is your dog? Uh, Five and a half months. Oh, puppy! Yeah. Yeah, way too much money for what we got from her. <laughs> well, we are getting a service dog that's a golden doodle for my son. He'll oh. be here in a few weeks. We've been waiting for a year and a half for him, and he's a full size golden yeah. doodle. So he's a big boy. He's going to be close yeah. to 100 pounds. Yeah. And he yeah. arrives at the end of this month ready to help my son Rocco, who has oh, um, a so nice. autism spectrum disorder, be more independent. And okay. um, we're so excited because. The only way I could sell my husband on a dog was having it arrive fully trained, trained. And ready to help. <laughs> He's a ready to help. I love it. Wow. <laughs> yeah, ready to help. So that's how we we got the pet in the house. But it's it's just as much almost like a working dog as yeah, a pet. He'll probably is. go to school with Rocco too. Oh wow. Yeah, he has a lot of really interesting skills that I'm excited to see in action. How old? How old will he be when he comes to your house? About 15 or 16 months. Okay. So okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Fully raised formed. by someone who helped him with the basic training. And then yep. he went to advanced training for a few months, at least, for skills that are more tailored to my son's needs. My son is classified as nonverbal. I don't really subscribe to that label because he tries his damnedest to communicate with words mm-hmm. every day. Oh, wow. Words don't sound like they're properly formed because he has a second diagnosis of apraxia. So it's almost like when a little child is learning to speak, their parent knows what they're saying. Yeah. Maybe right. someone on the street doesn't know what they're saying. And so some of his words sound a lot like that. So we're very excited to have another support for him to help could him you, be more and more independent. Could you define apraxia for us? Yes. It's a motor planning issue relating to speech. So his brain knows exactly what it wants to say. I could say, hey, Rock, how was your day? And his brain would say, oh, it was good. In math, I did this. In science, I did this. But when he goes to say it, the motor planning channels between brain and musculature are, I guess the word would be disrupted. Mm -hmm. So he in his head knows what he wants to say and can't always express it. So we have a lot of different tools that help him do so, but that's what apraxia is and I was explaining this to Tim Feldman once we shared a taxi to the yeah. airport in India and Tim and I know each other very well and I said exactly what I just told you what apraxia is and Tim goes I know exactly what this is it's like when my brain is telling my body to do kapotasa <laughs> my body's like what no, <laughs> and I was like basically basically it's the same it's the same idea I feel the same about music. Like I can hear the melody in my head perfectly and I can, and I can sing it. And then I go to sing it and it sounds like a completely different song. <laughs> well, motor, planning, motor planning is a real thing. And there's a lot of evidence that people with different types of special needs, neurodiversities, diagnoses have motor planning neuropathways that move slower. 
And mm-hmm. so it's not that they're incapable of doing the same things that you and I do. It's that they might need more supports to build out that process. It might take them more time, mm-hmm. more repetition. And this is actually a really good thing that we're discovering because many people wrongly assume that someone who is considered nonverbal or limited verbal ability isn't as smart, which is right. completely untrue. Mm-hmm. And so it's really exciting to see that now as more and more research comes out that supports this population, hopefully more opportunities will be available for them too. Yeah. I want to ask a, another question because I, it just occurred to me that maybe we should define autism as well. I've, sure. I've, for the last 15, 20 years or so, I've been started believing that my father is, um, I think what they used to call Asperger's, but now low spectrum autism. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there's any way that I could properly diagnose him without <laughs> his involvement. Um, cause he's difficult to talk to him. He just this morning, he texted me a, a machine cause he wanted to say, you know, how much he loved me. So he sent me a picture of a, of a, another car. And like, that's all he does. He just sends me pictures of machines and he really, really struggles. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering um, if you could also maybe define uh, autism for Because us. there's like a huge uh, spectrum. Like, like when people say neurodivergent now, it's like very... What does that mean? It's yeah. huge, right? It's huge. And the definition of autism, I'll give you the Oxford definition. I just pulled it up. Mm-hmm. Is a developmental disorder of variable severity. That variable is a key piece there. Yeah. That is characterized by difficulty in social interaction and communication mm-hmm. and by restricted or repetitive patterns of thought and behavior. I think that's an accurate definition that can be so varied in terms of how it shows up in someone's life. For example, my son has great challenges with his language. Mm-hmm. He also loves social interaction. He's an extrovert. He loves Big dinner parties, loves to be in a group of people, loves to hold hands, loves affection. So he's very atypical of what people think about when they think of someone with autism being withdrawn and isolating themselves and not wanting to. So, and, and yet, if you tried to communicate with him, you might assume that he had a lot more challenges, but in some ways he's much, he's very easy to navigate life with because he loves interacting with people. Whereas I've had many clients who have kids who are so smart that they're not given help in school in terms of socializing, how to handle things like a group project can be overwhelming to them. Their social anxiety piece is very intense. They're not confident in how to engage with others. And then when they lack confidence, they engage less and less. And it's kind of like riding a bike. The less you do it, Mm. the more out of practice and rusty you get. So the spectrum is very vast. And if you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. (laughs) It's really challenging in terms of how to support people who come with a label, but as you get to know them, have a lot of uniqueness, even next to someone with the exact same label. It's interesting. I, I I think I didn't really quite realize how how much how much my dad was struggling until I saw him with other people and in groups and yeah. and for so much of my life I would go to his house and we would you know be very kind of 
weird situation for me, um, disassociative in its own way, alienating, yeah. but like, I'm here with my dad. This is what my dad's like. But then when I saw him in a large group of people, like my first wedding, I realized that his social cues were so wrong and so off. And we'd be having a conversation and he would, we'd probably be having a conversation about like, say, yoga um, as a group. And he would break in and, and he would try and define the word baby mama to us. You know what a baby mama is? And it was like, whoa. (laughs) <laughs> that's not what we're talking about, dad. Okay. But he had it in his head. Yeah. And he needed to get it out. Loop. Yeah. yeah. Loop. And it's like, I need to really tell these young people about baby mamas. He know? did fine yeah. at our wedding. No, he didn't. He did. No, no, yes. no. He basically just kind of moved around and like a. Everyone loved him. Everyone loves him. Yeah. <laughs> but he does not know what's going on. He totally knows. <laughs> he totally knows. But think about. I mean, how old is your dad? Is he in his 70s? Yeah, he's 70, yeah. Okay. 72. So, yeah, so think about when he was a kid. <laughs> yeah. There was no support for mm-hmm. students who learned differently. There was no support for students who interacted differently. I remember when I was a kid, you know, I can go back and think of my fourth grade class and pick out the kids who probably had something going on in the way of mm-hmm. ADHD or their learning was different. And, you know, they got taken out to the resource room or they got extra help after school or something like that. But no one was telling them, hey, guys, your brain works differently. Right. They were instead being kind of pushed to fit into this box. Right. That they just, this box was not made for them. Right. Yeah. I wonder so if you I, could, I, yeah. I wonder if you could talk about that at all. Because I've, I've heard, and I, I'm not sure if, if you've seen this, uh, but I've heard that in a very different kind of environment, uh, autism is incredibly useful to human beings to function at a very high level. Say, for example, if you want to uh, follow a herd for, you know, a hundred miles, like you want someone who's a little autistic to be leading that. Have you heard that kind of thing before? I have. And I've heard that, you know, and from a spiritual perspective, I have a spiritual teacher who I work with and he loves to talk about people who are unique, autism, different types of neurodiversity as more evolved in spiritually and energetically. And so they come to this planet intentionally here to make us see differently and learn differently. And yet so much of the energy spent on this population is trying to fit them into this box. They're just right. not meant to fit into it. That's why many of them are very sensitive to sound or to crowds or to external stimuli. It's almost like their vibration is too high to be comfortable amidst the earthly mess. And I do believe that's true. And I think that we have a lot to learn from them. There's actually a documentary being made about my son, Rocco. It's going to be in film festivals really soon. Yeah. And there's um, a clinical expert who gives an interview in the film and he's written a book called Blue Mind, which is all around the ocean and how the ocean heals you. Because of course we surf, we love the ocean. I have the book right here. It's by Wallace Nichols. Wallace Nichols is his name. And he talks about how special needs kids aren't just needs. They have special gifts too. And this is true of special adults as well. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that if we can stop trying to get them to conform to these constructs in society, in school that were built for different types of people, and instead 
get more curious around, well, how did they learn? How did their brains work? What types of environments really helped them to thrive? I think that certainly in my son's case, I've seen him become very, very astute around his other senses because language does not come easily for him. So he's very perceptive with energy and Mm -hmm. sound and listening and all different types of stimuli that most people probably don't pay attention to because they're Mm -hmm. just caught up in their stuff all the time. I think I've I've heard some uh, someone say once that it's uh, autism could also be, or maybe it's uh, unfairly described as the engineering gene. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. and so if you have a couple of engineers in the family, you might statistically be more likely to have a a child with Asperger's or autism. And maybe I've I heard that in Silicon Valley, where I think so many <laughs> people are you know really yeah. struggling to make social cues but you know are CEOs of a of a tech company. Yeah. I think that's absolutely possible and I think that you do see people who are as you said more in the Asperger's classification area have that what you're talking about with your dad really summed up perfectly almost like you get in a loop and mm-hmm. this is the thing that you're good at this is the thing that you're passionate about this is the thing that really motivates you all the time there's a very fine line i've learned between having a passion a loop and having it become an ocd or a fixation it's a very fine line that a lot of people with neurodiversity often go back and forth on Mm -hmm. you know depending on how they manage themselves and the supports that they have but i think that that's absolutely true and i think it's also something that is probably fostered by the fact that they might relate more to technology or machines than people. And certainly if they haven't been nurtured in how they relate to people, they'll certainly put more awareness into the things that they do relate to easily and feel confident around. Mm -hmm. I Mm. think like, you know, I think the first time I really heard about autism was when I was much younger and my mom was a nurse also, like, I think your mom was a nurse too, right? So Mm Um, we watched the the movie Rain Man together. Oh, yeah. And so then she was explaining to me, like, because, yeah. you know, you're a kid and you're like, well, what's what's wrong with him? You know, and so then she was explaining autism. But it was and clearly so, like what, right. what was great about him. Yeah, but he had like <laughs> these incredible gifts, right? It's such a beautiful movie because it does show, I think, in a really, um, you know, emotional way also, like, you know, totally. sort of that love and that get the ability, like, like these incredible gifts, but then also like, like still loving or wanting to have social connection, but also totally. having something that is preventing that from happening. Right. Yeah, it, it's true. And I remember recently it was, you know, winter break or something. And I took my kids and like four of their friends bowling. So I threw them yeah. in the pickup truck and we went to the bowling alley. It was like, snowing and terrible weather outside and so my daughter had a bunch of her friends so there's like a the little like girl volume that happens yeah. <laughs> the pitch and the volume and the frequency that little girls have when they're together like 10 year old girls like, it was loud it was frenetic and my rock I was just sitting in the back like as happy as can be totally cool <laughs> totally unaffected totally and then you know it was funny. We had our bowling day. He was great. You know, he, I, I joked, but was also kind of serious with my husband. I was like, he is the easiest kid of all of them. No right, question. Yeah. And then I came home and then drove the other girls home. And when he came back, he's like, 
all these neurotypical kids are nothing like my special pure Rocco. And I said, you're right. Mm. Like he's like, he's got a purity to him that is really beautiful. And I think a lot of people who are special needs, unique, whatever title you want to use, there's something about that. I think we can all learn from and appreciate, you know, I see kids his age, he's 12 Mm -hmm. kind of getting into their like bratty preteen phase. Yeah. He's just not like that. He doesn't care about that. Stuff. He has his moments like anyone else where he throws his clothes on the floor and doesn't want to pick them up, but right. that's age appropriate behavior. You know, right. you know, my daughter does the same thing. And, and I see that there's something about him that's so loving and so not at all concerned with what's cool, what the popular kids are doing. Mm. He just, he vibrates above that. And mm. it's so beautiful to really have that every single day in my life and be like, okay, well, there might be kids who perform better than he does in school, Mm -hmm. but there's, they don't have that same capacity for love and connection. Mm -hmm. And it's just to be present, like to be fully present. You know, I joke, I am a yoga teacher. I teach Mm -hmm. people how to be present. And this child has taught me how to be present in a way that I never even knew existed. And this is just how he operates all the time. Mm, That's amazing. It is. It's, yeah, it's something the rest of us are striving to to cultivate in our day-to-day experience, right? And And Yes, absolutely. And I will say, though, that it doesn't come without its bumps in the road. And I think certainly if you're a parent and you, you know, no parent expects this. No, nobody. And mm-hmm. if you don't have something like Ashtanga yoga, meditation, a practice to care for yourself, I have seen it be really, really hard for some people who mm-hmm. don't have the tools to steady themselves amidst the chaos and the constant twists and turns that happen. And I'm so thankful. I go back in time a lot mentally and thank my young 20-something self who really was disciplined enough to cultivate a yoga practice yeah. when her friends were doing who knows what out at night and, and, <laughs> and stick with it, you know, as I became a parent because it really has been my North Star. And I can't say I would be able to see the beauty in the situation. And there is a lot of beauty, but I don't know if I would be able to see it or appreciate it if I didn't have tools for myself to feel good every single day. Well, I'm sure like having a neurodivergent child can just take everything out of you, like with your patience, your energy, your, you know, there's just something, even having a child does that, let alone a child that requires some special needs, some special attention and, and then has all the, external influences of society like you know coming down you know on their behavior or their lack of behavior in certain instances right and and so it's I can only imagine how easy it is to get completely burnt out and overwhelmed with having to you know, expend so much energy and so much love because you, you have all that love, you know, but you're just like, it's just a constant demand on yourself. And, and I love that you just brought that up that it's, you know, if you are not having something that's filling your own energy and your own 
like self-care practice that you're not doing something for yourself regularly, you know, not like getting your nails done or something, but like really deep, you know, I can only imagine how, how draining it is like on every level of, of being. Yeah. Well, like you said, it's, it can be a lot when you're parenting a typical child. Yeah, exactly. You full stop. And when you parent a different child, I think you turn the volume up on that a lot. And I I liked what you said about how self-care that you're doing regularly, that's not getting your nails done. I love getting my nails done. (laughs) Me too. At the same time, (laughs) at the same time, it is not an activity that regulates my nervous system. Exactly. I love adrenaline. It is not an activity that regulates my nervous system. Mm. For better or worse, Ashtanga yoga, meditation, even hypnosis regulate my nervous system Mm -hmm. i have just come to regard these things as medicine every day Mm -hmm. and i take it seriously you know if i weren't doing these things i might need regular medication to get through the day but i choose these things instead so because i've chosen these things instead i take them that seriously Mm -hmm. and i and i'm committed to doing them and i i think that just reminding people that self-care can be fun sometimes it can be restful sometimes and it also is favorable if it calms and steadies your nervous system because one thing that I've come to realize in my own journey and I see this with a lot of the parents that I work with is that they've experienced serious trauma along the way whether it was their child's diagnosis which it was for me whether it was their kid getting kicked out of school And they weren't prepared for that. I had a client recently who told me that she was called into school the second week for a parent-teacher conference. And she got there and the school had packed up all her kids' things. And like, oh, you're going to take her with you, bye. Mm -hmm. They were not equipped to handle her. There was no meeting about it. There was no, you know, let's communicate about it and try to troubleshoot, nothing. And so she said, and I get it, so I've been there. Every time the school calls, she like breaks out in a cold sweat. Like panicking. And it can be, be traumatizing. So like, like yeah. oh, she forgot her lunch today. Can we give her school lunch instead? Right. But in her brain, she's like, oh my God, it's the next shoe waiting to drop. Yeah, and yeah. so I think that it is worth looking at things that can calm and steady your nervous system. Because if you've had a traumatic experience with a child who didn't fit into the mold Mm-hmm. and it turns into PTSD, which right. often happens, whether you've had a diagnosis or not, you're probably seeing symptoms of it, that can snowball very quickly into clinical depression, anxiety disorders. And so self-care in the way I remind my clients to do it is something that's regulating your nervous system, whether you're in the mood to do that or not. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's that important. Panic mode. It's hard though if you're not in the mood. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like our lovemaking that way. My husband calls it a hard detour now. It's a hard detour. That's what I call PTS? it. That's exactly what I call no, it. Harmony? It this is a hard detour. Hard detour. <laughs> hard detour. <laughs> <laughs> What's PTS? He calls it pizza sex. Half the time that we order pizza, she catches me in the kitchen having sex with me. That's true. <laughs> it's exactly the same. I would not be surprised at all. Yeah, no, of course not. No one would be surprised to see Russell having no. sex with pizza. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> here we yeah. go. 
There but, we go. Yeah. yeah. I, I, would, it reminded, <laughs> I love it. This reminded me, um, <laughs> I, when I was in Taiwan, a John friend came to do a, uh, a lesson and my, and my boss there uh, told us that we all had to take a lesson with John friends. There was 20 of us in the room and it was really, it was a really weird kind of hostile <laughs> environment and hostile? hostile and like right in, in the yoga class. I think it was like at the height of the Anusara it versus before, Ashtanga. It was before <laughs> Anusara died. And, okay. and he, I, what I remember I took from it is, one, he was he was inculcating a cult the whole time, and two, he kept uh, he kept doing um, an impersonation of the Rain Man in the whole no, class. What? E- every other thing, he would say, "I'm not wearing any underwear." What? Or he he would like do the Dustin Hoffman thing, and I was like, "You're a sick fuck. You're making fun of the neurodivergent." right here in a yoga class throughout the whole thing. I was like, Jesus Christ, man. I'm going to call him. I'm going to call what he was doing. Attention seeking behavior. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it's, it's funny. Cause I, I use that phrase like with the kids of the parent, you know, my own kid and family. So I work with like when they act a certain way, you can tell like that's attention seeking behavior. I'm not yeah, trying to yeah. even engage with that. Yeah. But you'll see adults do this too. And that sounds like exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And it's also what I do. You know, it's funny. <laughs> the whole time that we were talking, I was waiting. It's like, I had this loop in my head. Like, Oh, I've got to tell this funny story. I have to. And I was yeah. like, just waiting and waiting and waiting for the moment that I could interject and tell my John friend's story. And I was like, I wonder if, am I on the spectrum? Jesus. But here's the thing is that it's a spectrum. <laughs> Right. So you right. probably have your things. It's like if you talk about sensory needs, you know, mm. everyone has sensory needs and things that do yeah. not feel good for them. And my husband always is really creeped out by different textures. Like if you open a jar of vitamins and there's cotton in there, he's like, Oh, that feels creepy. And I'm like, What are you yeah. talking about? It's fine. It's Whereas he loves it. Right, right. Like it was, he thinks weighted blankets are the most grounding, amazing things in the world. My son loves it too. And yeah. I feel, I'm like, I feel trapped. I don't want any yeah. of this. But everyone has different right. needs and different things that are quirky, different about them, but everyone has it. So like For I sure. meet kids and the parents, like my kid has sensory processing, processing disorder. And I said, well, everyone has sensory needs your child just might need to pay more attention to them to help them ground and center themselves right now. But it's not a bad thing that mm-hmm. we're getting to know their sensory needs because everybody has sensory needs and everyone has to manage theirs. That's why I always laugh when I see the memes about how you're old now, when you have to parallel park your car and turn the music down. Yeah. <laughs> but but the thing is that i read that and i laugh because people don't realize when your sensory system is flooded overwhelmed yeah. your auditory yeah. is going to be the first thing to go for anyone mm. so that you can focus better and think about right. it if you're driving a car you can't remove your visual sense you have to see you can't remove your tactile sense you have to hold the steering wheel yeah. so what's going to go your auditory like oh let me shut this down so I yeah. can focus. So everyone's yeah. going to have sensory needs. I think from what I've come to understand is that these labels come in when your needs become a disruption to you living a daily life. Yeah. Right? 
And so I think everyone is going to have moments where they have a loop in their head. Like you said, a story that you can't get out of your brain, right? Or like that song yeah. that you can't stop singing. Yeah. Everyone's going to have those types of loops, but for some people, those loops can be very disruptive and impede on their ability to function. Yeah. My sense of humor is like that. Um, <laughs> I was going to, I was going to ask you if you knew the, the woman, uh, Temple Grandin, who I know of her. Yeah. Yeah. So I had heard that, that, she has, has been assisting the cattle industry for decades and applying her own self-knowledge about her uh, neurodivergent needs and saying the, cat, I, the cattle um, have very similar needs. They, they like to be, like, like you said with your husband, they, need a, they like having a thunder coat. They like being held because it makes them feel safe. Uh, they don't like crossing boundaries from light into the dark. And often I think a lot of neurodivergent people uh, yeah. struggle with transitions. And I was, yeah. I was, and so I was just wondering if you had, if you had heard of her, if you had any kind of, um, because what, you, what you're describing is like, you're applying your, your knowledge and your insight of your son to, to help other people. Yeah. I think that Temple Grandin was one of the first people to really speak out as a neurodivergent adult, especially. Mm -hmm. And I think, you might notice this, that now there are so many supports for kids mm, and anymore, yeah. not as many for adults. And, right. and I think that when you speak of someone like your dad, you know, if he were to get diagnosed now in his seventies, what supports would there be for him? Maybe mm -hmm. some, you'd probably have to look really hard to find them. And would they be readily available? We don't know. So well, I think that she's been a great... He's given a, a machine to work on every day <laughs> and he has a wife that doesn't speak English. I mean, the whole thing is perfect for him. <laughs> mm. He's found his way. Yeah, yeah, he's fine. He's yeah, yeah. Mm. But I think Temple Grandin has been a really important voice because she's not afraid to draw attention to herself. And I think that there's been... And I hate to say it, but it's true. But even... In America, we live in a very inclusive society. There are a lot of supports compared to other places in the world for people with unique needs. And still, when you're a parent and you go into a meeting with your school district to talk about your kid, you are made to feel like you are the only ones asking for things. You are the only ones. It's true. You're the only ones who aren't fitting into the box. It's very disheartening for people. So I think the more adults like Temple Grandin who speak up and say, this is how I function in the world. This is what helps me. It may or may not help you, but why don't you give it a try and see if it helps you to feel more comfortable with yourself or how you function in the world is really important. And I think we're still just starting to see adults do that because I think that they probably grew up with a lot of shame and isolation Mm -hmm. yeah. not really know how to help them now at least with kids we know how to help them it's talked about you know it's not yeah, the there's, secret there's more there's also more of an awareness around diagnosing it but once people become like teenagers or young adults or even older adults there's not so much attention around diagnosing it it's interesting yeah. unless you know you're going through a particularly uh, difficult situation where like maybe yeah. somebody's you know you're you're going to a therapist or something you know and then they're saying oh you have like an ADD disorder or you have you know 
you're obviously on the spectrum and, and then you're like, what? <laughs> I'm 40 years old. <laughs> this is exactly what happened to my husband. Really? Last year, last year at 41 was diagnosed with ADHD. And as soon mm-hmm. as he was, I was like, this makes so much sense, well, but it shows up differently in adults than children. Mm-hmm. And I could just tell something was not quite right with him. He, I could tell he wasn't really happy you know, with where he was in his life. And I could just tell there was something. I didn't know what. I thought maybe it was still trauma that was not healed from Rocco's diagnosis or other things in his life. And I said, you know, babe, you need to go and talk to somebody. So he, we found a great EMDR therapist. Mm. It was a brilliant man. And he shows up to do EMDR therapy with this amazing doctor. And the doctor is talking about, you know, like, well, what do you want to work on, Ben? And Ben's talking to him while he's taking like all his vitamins in the morning. And the doctor's like, what are you taking? And he said, oh, I'm taking like bee pollen and ginkgo biloba. And I'm taking, you know, like all these energizing vitamins. And he's like, and you're drinking a coffee? (laughs) And he goes, how would your wife feel if you gave her all these vitamins in the morning and drank a coffee? He's like, oh, she'd be in the hospital. She should be like jumping off the ceiling. And he's like, well, this is telling me about how your brain works because Adderall and Ritalin, those types of medications right. are actually stimulants for the executive functioning part of your brain. Right. Mm-hmm. And the doctor is like, we can't do EMDR with you. We can't do anything with you until we know if you have ADHD or not, because it's going to affect how we work together and how you, you receive from therapy. Because what's the point of doing therapy if you're not taking anything from it? Because that's not how your brain works. Right. And so he printed out these questionnaires that mm-hmm. I had to fill out as someone who lives with them. Right. And I felt like I was filling out a questionnaire that was made for Ben. It was like all these mm. things I never put together. And I remember like the year before I would tell him something, you know, how parenting is like you talk to each other while you're cleaning up the kitchen at night and, you know, mm-hmm. before you go and sleep. And I remember I would tell him something and he'd absorb it say, okay, acknowledge it. He'd leave the room, go take a shower, come back and say, he'd ask me the same question again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, are you not listening to me? And he's like, no, he didn't know. And then he would do it again and again. And I was like, you're totally disregarding me. I was taking it personally. Yeah. And yeah. we realized it wasn't that he wasn't listening at all. He was not absorbing the information because mm-hmm. that's Gosh. just how his brain worked. And so it was so wild to go through that process of having him diagnosed because I kept asking myself, why did, why were you never diagnosed as a kid? Why were you never given the supports? And it was because he did well in school. He didn't need any extra help. He did well socially. He didn't need any extra help. It didn't matter if he couldn't figure out how to shower, brush his teeth, eat his breakfast, get dressed and leave the house on time in the morning. And he was late every day. Like that's executive functioning. He couldn't do things like that. The mm-hmm. people would kind of be like, ah, you know, he's just disorganized or he's just, you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. right. But now we're realizing as all those things kind of built and built upon each other, his his therapist is really shocked that no doctor ever down the line was like, maybe we should check this out. But this is mm-hmm. what's happening with adults all the time because everyone's paying attention to the kids. Yeah. So it's very common for adults to say like, why can't I get up an adult in the morning? You know, why do I feel like I start one task and I can't finish it? And, and you know, I'm, I'm all over the place. And 
they're beating themselves up for something that might just be how their brain works. Mm-hmm. I think I need to go see them. We're, <laughs> we're both thinking the same thing that Harley <laughs> is kind of struggling with ADHD, just like my mom. Um, do you I feel like? Do you feel like there's a there's a relationship there in your family between what uh, Rocco is experiencing and and other members? Do you recognize your son and, and other members of your family? Well, we work with a really phenomenal doctor who specializes in kids with autism, ADHD, allergies, things like that. And he's got a really sharp sense of humor. And Mm -hmm. you know who he is right away. And you know if you love him or hate him right away. And I love him. And Ben (laughs) does too. But when we go in, you'd love him too, Russell. You guys would banter all the (laughs) time. But when we go in, he's, you know, and I'll say like, Rocco's got this going on, this and that. He'll look at Ben and he'll say, he's the apple and you're the tree. And he's joking, but he's also not joking because, you know, he's picking up on things that probably have been passed down in a different, unique way. I think it's Mm -hmm. 50% of kids with a neurodiversity have a parent that also has it diagnosed or not. And that's the people who I think are diagnosed. Can you imagine if all the people had their diagnoses? What a lot. So I, I think that, it's interesting. I see things like that. Like Ben has a tendency to be very fidgety, which is mm-hmm. totally ADHD related. And I think that's something you see in a lot of people on the spectrum. If they feel, I want to say insecure or overtired or just not confident in a situation, you might see them get handsy or like stim mm-hmm. on, pick up something and kind of stim on it frantically or, you know, mm-hmm. um, like a self-stimulatory behave, behavior to make mm. themselves feel like something is predictable, something is dependable. It's, it's a very common tendency. So I, I see kind of that link between, between them. And it's funny when Ben and I met, I was like, oh, he's just somebody who fidgets his leg. Like I didn't think anything of it, mm. but there's definitely that. And I also see things that, you know, I don't know if they're spectrum related or not, but I see myself in, in Rocco too. Like he's, he's a thinker. He's very cerebral. And I'm, mm. I'm that way. It's an Aquarian mm-hmm. thing. We were talking about astrology. Yeah. Earlier. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of, a lot of things like that, you know, and I, I can see how sometimes you might blame it on the spectrum. Like, Oh, he doesn't want to go and engage with those kids or he might just not, you know, it's not, he might just not feel he like it. Not care. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, so hard to say, you know, whether something is categorized as this is a spectrum tendency or not, but I definitely see both of us in him. Mm -hmm. One thing I see in him that I'm the same is he really is dependent on eating high quality food to feel good. And I think this Mm -hmm. is the case of a lot of people, but your son or your husband. (laughs) I think, I think Ben does too. He's just not as, he's not as diligent. He's still a very healthy eater compared to the general population, but I but I see that Rocco really is very sensitive to if he were to eat something that isn't bad, but just doesn't work for his body, mm. he would feel noticeably different within the next 24 hours. Yeah. And I'm that way. And I know I'm that way because yoga is my benchmark. So I can right. totally tell, like, oh, I had this last night. And then this morning in practice, my, my joints felt really stiff. Right. So I can tell that I 
am not allergic to things per se, but I really notice when things don't make me feel good. And he is that way as well. And one of his teachers said, he's like a Ferrari. He needs the highest quality fuel. <laughs> and when you give him that, he performs yeah. really, really well, like phenomenally well. But, you know, he's not somebody who you can just throw whatever cheapest gas at the gas station in and expect him to function well. That's not, right. that's not. Yeah. And, and I, I can relate to that a lot for myself I, too. I love that you bring that up because I think that is one of the things too, that when your child does get diagnosed, if you have like, a, if you're working with someone who's really you know, tuned in to how food affects people, they're going to, that's going to be like one of the first things they're going to start working on is like, well, okay, like you need to take out these certain foods and see how they're responding now. Right. Because I know certain foods can really aggravate the nervous system, which has to do with your, how you're thinking. Yeah. Your gut and your brain go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And if your gut's unhappy, everything else is going to be unhappy. And the cool thing is that there's new testing out that really gives a good handle on how your body is affected by certain types of toxins, like mold toxins, mm-hmm. pesticides, you, mm-hmm. you name it, metals, um, all kinds of things. And we took the gluten and dairy out of Rocco's diet when he was two, so 10 years ago, and he's done very well with that. And we knew this testing existed, but it used to be like $10,000. So we're, like, right. we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. And then this past year, something happened and some, it, they lowered their price significantly. It's like mm-hmm. under $500. Wow. So we decided to do it. And we've been on a health journey with him again for 10 years. And then seeing the things that were coming back from this testing foods that you would never think are bad mm-hmm. are not, they're not bad. I think no food is good or bad. It's just, mm-hmm. can your body work with it? Yeah. Foods that, work really well for my body, like brown rice, mm-hmm. quinoa are like poison to him. No, right? Jesus. Yeah. And it, and it was, and reading through the pages and pages of like what's going on in his gut, aflatoxins, mycotoxins, you name it, all these things, realizing that you can buy organic biodynamic cucumbers that are wrapped in plastic and styrofoam and his body's absorbing the plastic and the styrofoam from the wrapper that you don't even eat. And it's, it was just a mind blowing thing to realize. And so back six months ago, we had to change his diet a lot again. And Mm -hmm. it was a lot of work. And so for parents who are feeling like, this is a big undertaking. I want you to know, I feel you. I've been there and he's a different kid now. Hmm. Wow. Kid. And, I, and I think that it was just us taking a closer look at how his body works. Things can that you, he's sensitive to, I'm not. Can you do a, um, a comparison of how he's different? And- yes. Um, when you talk about a special needs kid, very often people use the word behavioral. Mm-hmm. I am lucky enough that I've worked with great doctors who always say, it's lazy to just throw around that term behavioral because you're not going to behave a certain way unless your body is telling you to do it. Yeah. Really? But most people <laughs> are too lazy to do it or don't know how to look deeper. Mm-hmm. And I've thankfully found specialists who I trust who do. So we changed his diet and he's a very happy boy, but he would have moments where he would just seem upset and we didn't really know why. Right. And now he's happy 
almost all the time. If he's upset, mm. we know like, oh, his allergies are bothering him or he's got a cold or something. It, it's clear. He's just a happier kid. Also, something really interesting is that for about six months before we found out about this dietary change to, that we wanted to make, we do blood work regularly because he has limited language. He can't always tell us how he's feeling. Right. So I would say we do blood work quarterly. We also live out in nature. So there are ticks around and it's good to check for Lyme disease and things like that. Mm -hmm. So he had two things that kept showing up that we couldn't figure out. One was that his thyroid was producing antibodies or something that just didn't make sense. He didn't have a thyroid infection. There was nothing going on, mm -hmm. but the antibodies kept showing up on blood work. Ditto with... Um, protein in his urine, his kidneys, like something was going on, but I took him to the kidney specialist. Can't find anything wrong. We make this change to his diet. We repeat blood work one month later. All those things are gone. Oh, interesting. Whoa. Yeah. It's like yeah, a low level uh, allergy almost that your body's like constantly needing to react to your immune system's like trying to fight off whatever, you know, these. Yeah. It was really wild. And wow. one month, and I remember thinking, well, whatever, you know, I was feeling about this being a burden or annoying because I was never somebody who wanted to make a different dinner for everyone in the family. You know, and now <laughs> I have this kid who like can't eat the things that make me feel good. And then, you know, I couldn't even give him things that my daughter would like, you know, in some ways. So I, I had to really figure out what worked for him. But then after he got that blood work, I didn't even care. I was like, mm. This is worth it. It's annoying. Mm but it's worth it. And I was really glad that I had that confirmation. And I think that's why a lot of parents give up with the mm -hmm. dietary changes is because they're kind of flying blind. They're reading a book and doing right. what they think is going to be helpful. And it is, but they don't, maybe they don't trust someone or know someone who can check internally and see what's mm -hmm. going on. And so then it just becomes annoying to keep putting up the boundaries with grandma and grandpa who want to bring pizza over every week or you know the birthday party thing like you know yeah. I have people who say like is your son upset that he can't eat like everybody else mm. and I'm just like he doesn't know any different because we've always just had him eating things that help him so I don't care like, it doesn't yeah. matter to me if he can't have like the cupcake with electric blue icing because I'll bring him something he can have He'll be fine with it. And it's everyone else like projecting their stuff onto him. But it's it, it was totally worth the trouble of yeah. looking closer, seeing what was going on. Also, we discovered that a lot of um, the things that were provoking his body to not feel good interfere with fat absorption, which is so important for your brain development. Yeah. And, and so as we tweaked things like that with our doctor, it sounds funny. He, my kids are a healthy weight for their height, but his he looked more fit. His midsection uh, looked thinner because he was absorbing the fat that he needed. And wow. your body needs to absorb what you're giving it. So it was very interesting to, to notice those changes in a real tangible way because I think a lot of people just get frustrated and tired of like, you know, when I first made him gluten-free when he was two, I was like the wicked witch of the family. Yeah. yeah. You would have thought I was withholding love from my child. And this was 10 yeah, years yeah. ago before you could find <laughs> 10 years ago it was yeah, different. Yeah. But it's like you were lucky to find gluten-free pasta right. that didn't taste like, like 
cardboard in the store. Yeah. And, and, in, and now it's not even a thing. But it's everywhere. It's every restaurant. It's everywhere. And, but, but I had to be okay upholding my boundaries because I knew it was good for him. And so what I did eventually was I told everyone who gave me pushback, would you like to come to our next doctor's appointment with us? Yeah. You're welcome, no, really, you're welcome to come. Please ask all of your questions. I'm happy to, to be there with you. And, and you can find out for yourself what I'm doing Love and it. see what you think about it. Only one person came once. Someone came? And- <laughs> what a dick. It was a grandma, <laughs> right? <laughs> It was a grandma. It was props to my mother-in-law and I, and I give, and I love my mother-in-law and I give her a lot of credit. Like she cared enough to actually come and ask questions because like, right. you can't eat my pizza. You can't like, eat my pizza. But you know what? She started making things that he could have after that. And no one questioned me again. That's and it beautiful. was wonderful. So yeah. Yeah. One thing, I, one thing I really love hearing um, you say is you'll talk about getting a, a diagnosis and how it's really helpful to get a diagnosis, but it's not a diagnosis of a, of a disorder. It's, it's something that's, it's a diagnosis of a um, unique gift and it's such a, it's a different or a sensitivity or a maybe. sensitivity. And so even though you spent a lot of time disciplining and ordering your life, because it's not a disorder, and I, I really, I really appreciate hearing, hearing that. And I think a, a lot of our listeners at, at home will as well, because people say, oh, everyone's getting diagnosed with some disorder these days, you know, <laughs> yeah. but um, you're obviously in a situation, a unique situation that um, uh, was contributing to a lot of, of suffering and anxiety and, and you needed help. And so getting that help is, I think, um, clearly been a, um, a, a purpose for you. Yeah. I think diagnoses are both everything and nothing. Mm-hmm. They're, it's a label. And mm-hmm. sometimes you need that label in order to get what you need to help you in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like, like <laughs> someone calling Rocco nonverbal. I don't subscribe to that because he really communicates with me beautifully. We have a very close trusting relationship. He really says what he can as confidently as possible. And you know what? He says more every day. So who am I to say that he's not going to just talk more and more and eventually talk perfectly? We don't know. I like to leave that open-ended, but for the way the world interacts with him, they need a way to classify him so that they know what to do. And, And what what I've come to tell the people I, I counsel is that don't make it mean anything. I don't make his labels mean anything about him. They're mm-hmm. just classifications so that the people around him know what they're doing and how to communicate with him and how to mm-hmm. help him, but they don't mean anything about him. And I think to what you were saying, Russell, about the diagnosis and you know the disorder way of looking at things is that like, there's nothing really to fix. I think if your body is not feeling well, like my son and his diet, that's something to fix. Yeah. But otherwise, there's nothing broken. And I think as a collective society, it's like, can we just stop trying to fix ourselves? Mm-hmm. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, think of the money the internet marketers are making, like trying to convince you that you're broken or something and that you need their program to go and fix yourself. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. like, can we just accept that your brain might work differently and support it? 
mm-hmm. the ways that you need, but there's nothing wrong with you. And I think that was something I really had to get over when he was little. I think one of the reasons why his diagnosis was so traumatic for me is because I thought it was something I needed to fix about him or there was right. something wrong with him. And yeah. then eventually I came to realize like, I don't actually want to change this kid at all. He's so cool. I, I want to make him feel confident in his ability to navigate his life by himself. Right. But I don't want to change who he is. If I could go back mm. in time and change it, I wouldn't. Yeah. And I say that wholeheartedly. Yeah, that's beautiful. Hey, it's, it's interesting. You know, when I, um, I want to, I want to follow that thread about um, him developing autism. Um, if I can remember, but uh, I, when I was working at an organization and I was, and I was media facing and having to, to um, give short sound bites to explain our position um, because we were in um, choppy waters um, in California being sued. I, uh, having these categories and, and structures or uh, uh, s- short, simple uh, I'm, I've lost my words, but um, what you were just talking about labels. labels, thank you. <laughs> having, having, having labels to Sticky hand notes. out and, and, <laughs> and pass around, like this is what's going on was really helpful for a, a large audience to digest. And, and then they could go on being comfortable with their lives. It's like, Oh, Oh, I see. This isn't, yeah. this, this is a, uh, this is self-regulation and learning tools of self-regulation. This isn't Hindu devil worship. Okay. I can go on. Right. Um, And it's, it's amazing how, how I, you can apply that to every other aspect of your life. So when I'm interacting with Harmony's family, I do the same thing. I give them short little sound bites (laughs) to explain our situation. So they will leave us alone and they're like, Oh, they're fine. You know, people like labels. It makes them feel comfortable when they can wrap their head around something. Like think about, you know, when you go to meet the parents, right? When mm-hmm. you go to meet Harmony's parents when you're first dating. And yeah. someone says, like, well, what are you? Are you dating? Are you engaged? Are you married? Right. Like people, people want to put a label on it so that they you know, can understand it within the constructs that they were. Yeah. In. And Harmony's dad thought I was gay. So it was like <laughs> totally understood what was going on. I, 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 I think he I met you thought. three times before he figured out we were dating. He thought I was gay. My mom's like, you know, they're dating, right? He's no, like, no, 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 no. Russell's gay. gay. <laughs> no, I'm fucking your mom your had to tell That's us. what's going no, on. <laughs> That's so funny. He was like, so what? Yeah. It's like a, it's like a superpower that I have. Um, <laughs> I want to, but let's going back to to Rocco, and I want to I want to also hear more about your parents as well. But um, yeah. do you? I feel like this is probably a little hot to talk about. Um, do you feel like environmental factors had anything to do with your son's development of an autism uh, yes. diagnosis? Yes, I've actually done genetic testing on both my children to see mm-hmm. what gene mutations they have going on. Um, Rocco has a few different um, gene mutations that make it hard for him to detoxify himself. I do not have those. So I think that for everyone, there's a tipping point where their body is burdened. And when someone crosses that tipping point, that's where you might see chronic illness or autoimmune stuff where things Mm -hmm. develop like that. And I think 
for many people, that is the case with autism too. Very, my, and this is why I think you don't see autism until after age one. You might see little yeah. things before that, but their body might just hit a tipping point. Who knows what's in the water they're drinking? Who knows what, you know, are they eating food from a can and absorbing all that metal? Who knows yeah. what types of medications they've been given? Like there, there could just be a tipping point where their body is so burdened by the toxic overload that they have to focus on that instead of focusing on something like speech with him. And it, it's kind of like you put the trash outside every day and the trash man just doesn't come. And then it and builds then up. Yeah. Right. So I think they call that epigenetics, it. right? When you have a gene that then is activated by the environment. Yes. I think there are so many questions around the environment now. I certainly, you know, went through a phase where probably right after he was diagnosed, I really took a hard look at everything that I was doing and was like, what did I do wrong? Because again, sure. I made it that I'd done something wrong. I had my babies at home with a midwife, no drugs. I breastfed. They never had formula. I made all their food. I did all that stuff. So in my mind, I was like, but I did everything right. You know, mm-hmm. in my mind, whatever that means, how could this have happened? And so I really started looking more and more around like air pollution and water pollution and, and, and mm-hmm. food pollution, even in organic food, there are a certain amount of chemicals that are allowed unless you're buying food from a farm. And also looking at other things like, well, what can I help him do to detoxify himself a little faster so that he can feel good and his body can keep up with that? And yeah, there are environmental factors. People like to ask if I vaccinate or not. And I say, I don't answer that question because I don't want you to make your decision based on my decision. I want you to go and research and do your own research. And you decide if you feel comfortable with that or not. But I think that so people are looking for answers like that. Like, tell me what to do yeah. so that I can either avoid autism or heal autism or what. Yeah. Like you have to I need a label to move off. I need, move a, on with my I need life. a trajectory. I need a trajectory yeah. and I need specific instructions. But one of the things I've learned from working with a doctor is that different treatments work for different kids. Things that work beautifully for my kid. Medical marijuana has been a game changer for my child. Wow. Yeah. don't work for other people. And when I asked the doctor why, and he's like, right. gene mutations. Did you ever have that friend in college who smoked pot and then went off the wall, like hyper and crazy and nutty? That's like, us. Both of us have brothers who are stoned every day, <laughs> all day. I'm not, not we're not joking. Day, but it's true. And they're stoned and all day. Are- and they don't have psychotic reactions to marijuana like Harmony and I do. With just... Well, lightest bit well I, I believe you that's a gene mutation and yeah. and so his doctor said to me you know when we test out medical marijuana to see if it helps him with his adrenal stuff and stuff we were looking at only buy a week or two worth of a supply at a time because if you give it to him and he's the kid who goes off the wall right you don't mm-hmm. want to buy like three months worth and then have all that money like go down the drink so yeah. it's like just buy a little let's oh, test it'll get it. used don't worry doctor <laughs> Right, like seriously, it won't get away from it. That's the point. But he said, "Don't you don't know until you try it." And there were certainly friends, people who I knew who tried it, and it was like it didn't work for them. And so mm-hmm. you can't you can't give everyone a trajectory. Just like I did a Facebook live with my yoga hat on for someone last year, and they kept asking, like, "What are the three 
things that people need to do to be successful in their yoga business. And I was like, well, I don't know about your yoga business. Like, who are you working with? How long have you been doing this? What type of yoga do you want to teach? Do you want to teach in studios? Do you want to teach privately? Like, there's no, there's no cookie cutter thing that I can tell you. And people, I think they're scrambling for answers and they want me to say there's a cookie cutter thing, but there's not. So I think you have to just test things out and see what works for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's interesting too. I think there's so much more awareness around like highly sensitive people these days and, and having that even as like a slight, you know, neurodivergent disorder. We have a small puppy coming Mm. into my lap. Um, and I always, I feel like, you know, Jediah has that a little bit, you know, when he was really young, he wouldn't want anyone to touch his toys, toys. because yeah. he, if we'd say, why don't you want us to touch your toy? And he's like, cause it feels different after you touch it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I was I like, so whoa. I'm yeah. so glad that you said that. Yeah, I meet people all the time whose yeah. kids are tested and evaluated and yeah. they don't have any diagnosis and yeah. yet. They're different. Yeah. They're energetically sensitive. <laughs> and, yes. and so like with those parents, there's a different conversation around how can you help your kid if the labels are not allowing them to get supports from other resources? Yeah. What can you do? Yeah. It doesn't he, mean they don't need it. Yeah. And he had some interesting other things too. Like he wouldn't want to feed himself because he didn't like to like touch the spoon because <laughs> yeah. he felt like it was like contaminated. And so like, he had like these interesting ideas that didn't come from anywhere. It was just like, he was just like super highly sensitive and he could taste like he would never have breast milk like that was in the fridge. He always Mm. had to have it fresh. He wouldn't eat old food, like leftover food. He just wouldn't eat it. Wouldn't touch it. Still won't. Still doesn't. Like if it's leftover. If it's a day. Forget about it. You throw it away. Like he's not going to eat it. We We eat the old food. Yeah. Like he's just really sensitive to things the, being, I don't know, clean and fresh. At the, at the same time, I think one of the best things that we've we've done for him is buy him a, a puppy. Cause that's we've it's yeah. amazing how self-soothing that is for him to have the puppy. Yeah. And to be able to it really changes his um or he demonstrates a different aspect of his personality when he can have the puppy in his arms and hold it. Yeah. And it reminded me what you said about, you know, you getting a, a golden mm. doodle for your son. Have you, have you heard of that book, uh, Horse Boy by Kristen no. Neff? So Kristen Neff is, uh, is uh, I think, famous in the mindfulness, mindfulness circles. Mm-hmm. But she and I used to practice yoga together with Sharon Moon in Austin, Texas. I think when I was 19, 20, uh, her husband was a travel author, Rupert Isaacson. And they made a career off of this horse boy book, which is about their child with uh, an, a um, neurodivergent uh, diagnosis. And they happen to have a farm. And what they realized that the very, the very best they could do for him was to get him around animals. And so when he was with the horses that really transformed his personality. He was able to, to thrive the more time that he spent. Um, they made a, and they made a movie that I think um, got a Sundance award called horse boy. Cool. And it was really, really incredible. Um, I'd like to, to try and introduce you to Christian if I could. Um, I but it's just, you know, there's, you know, 
it's just interesting thinking about Jediah in that context is like of how mm-hmm. they manifest different parts of the personality when, when they're in different situations and something yes. like, um, and it's interesting, like he do, he won't eat ice cream, he won't eat pizza, he won't eat cake. <laughs> no, he won't. Like he just he just regulates well, himself. He's no, a little sugar I sensitive. Know. I don't know exactly sugar if it's the taste, taste, if it's if it's he he just doesn't feel good after he eats it, so he just says he Dad, won't eat it. It's bread and cheese. Why? <laughs> and then he said, you know, he's just really very sugar sensitive, so sugar will make him death yeah. spiral. Yeah, yeah. Every time, but yeah. um. So he just, he's, he's interesting that way. And that he's sort of like, yeah. And so we'll go over to my parents' house and everyone's eating pizza and he like, will have sushi or something, you know, vegetarian sushi. Cause he also doesn't eat meat. So he's very good. He won't touch the beyond meat because it's too much like meat to his eyes. (laughs) I get that. Yeah. Yeah. I get that a lot. It's funny because my daughter, because she did not have intense dietary needs was Mm -hmm. the one that people would try to spoil with right sugar food and stuff thankfully she's not a quantity person like she can have a couple bites and be done but there was this one time I feel like it was the end of summer vacation it was her birthday it was friends birthdays they were at the beach all the time people were ordering pizza to the beach so so they could watch sunset or whatever and she came home one night she showered she got into bed and I went to tuck her in and she's like mom I just feel so terrible I said, oh yeah? She's like, I can't. I can't eat any of that stuff anymore. And in a way, I was so glad because I didn't have to be the one to say, hey, it doesn't make you feel good. She figured that out by herself. Yeah, She's yeah, like, this yeah. does not make me feel good. My skin's getting rashes. I, yeah. I feel cranky and tired. Like, I don't like this. This is not worth it. And so now it's easy to remind her like, oh, hey, you're going to a sleepover this weekend. Do you want me to send anything with you? Make good choices. I'm happy to provide dinner if you want. And, you know, and she remembers herself. So it's nice that she's learning these things and figuring it out for herself. And and I always laugh because when I was a little kid, the thing that I really wanted was marshmallow fluff. Yeah. (laughs) You remember that stuff? I would go to friends' houses and rub my body with it. The peanut butter and fluff on white bread. And my mom refused to buy it. She's like, I'm not buying that garbage. There's, you know, no. 100% and sugar. <laughs> and I begged for it. My sister begged for it and she would never buy it. Yeah. And we eat it at friends' houses and she hoped that would be enough. And then one day, my dad was a policeman, worked in the town where he grew up. So he always came home for dinner. My mom would cook. One day he came home to this amazing Italian wife who cooked this beautiful home-cooked meal every night. And walks in and was like, guess what I have? And pulls out a jar of marshmallow fluff while like dinner <laughs> on the table, ready to be eaten. My mom must have been so pissed. Oh, and he's like, I furious. still remember the shrieking that you girls <laughs> did. Like you jumped on your chairs like you'd never seen food before. And you were freaking out. You were so excited. He said, and then he said, and then you both ate a fluff or another sandwich for dinner that night. Rest went into the fridge for leftovers for the next day. He said, and then that jar sat in the cabinet for years until or like until, until we threw it away it's like the novelty had worn off and you didn't yeah. want it anymore you right. said like, i knew i had to do it because you were getting obsessed with something that was forbidden right, right. Yeah. i had to just like nip it and yeah. you know with rocco it's a little different because he's so sensitive that we don't even go there because we've seen him yeah. eat something that doesn't work for him by accident usually right or you know someone 
gets a bagel. We live in Long Island. Someone gets a bagel and cream cheese and leaves it out. And then he goes over and takes a bite of it. Like he doesn't feel good the rest yeah. of the yeah. day. Yeah. We, so we, we don't even bother with him, but no. you know, in some ways he's easier because he just knows, like, I don't even want to like Jediah, like this is yeah. not for me. Yeah. I don't need to test it. And, yeah. Which is helpful. And do you recognize yourself in your child, in your children? Do you feel like uh, growing up in Boston that you, you, you have anything similar about yourself or I'm really kind of, I'm also just trying to, to just take a little tangent and find out more about you and what you were like as a, as a 10 year old girl. I was like a perfectionistic type A overachiever (laughs) child. That's so surprising. Okay. This is why I I needed yoga. That's Um, why you did Ashtanga yoga. Let's be honest. Um, But no, I did Ashtanga yoga because I tried all the different yogas that I could find. We're we're skipping 10 years here, Harm. Can we just keep it? Let's get from 10 to 12 to 14 before we get to 20. She said she was a perfectionist. How much more do you need? Um, (laughs) I remember being, I remember being a little kid and feeling like I always had friends. I always did. I did exceptionally well in school. I felt like I had a lot of self-imposed pressure to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, I always kind of felt like I didn't belong. For no external reason, I had friends, I, I did the activities and played the sports and all that stuff, but I always just felt kind of different. Maybe it's an Aquarian thing, maybe it's mm-hmm. a spiritual thing, I don't know. Um, it's the, the Atman, separate from the Paramatman. <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah, I think that I, I ended up in all-girls Catholic school for high oh, school because okay I, now here we go i was made fun of um <laughs> you know when i you know middle school is such an awful age i, I yeah. shouldn't say it's awful across the board it was awful for me um and i was in public school at the time and i i liked school i found it interesting and i remember i came home and i said you know mom and dad i always want to raise my hand in class but i don't anymore because i feel like people make fun of me mm-hmm. when i know the answers Good. and you know, and my dad was kind of like, that's wrong. School should be a place where learning is encouraged. And so mm-hmm. I, I started looking for an environment that felt safer for me, actually. And so I really liked the all girls environment. And I liked that there was just a baseline for decorum, like how, like act mature, you know, like you're not, gonna, you're mm-hmm. not allowed to make fun of people. You're not allowed to be a bully. Like this just doesn't exist here. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, that felt really safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and my bullying was never, it was never that bad. I don't even know if I would call it bullying. I would call it teasing or something, but I felt like I couldn't. What you myself. were doing to the other girls, you were bullying them. You wouldn't <laughs> no, call it bullying. Would, no. They would probably call it bullying. What they you would were probably doing. Call it bullying. <laughs> I, was, I was obviously making them feel, I don't know. I, I like inadequate. I <laughs> yeah. Like that. Something. And, um, it was like the mean girls scenario, you know, mm-hmm. like that movie. It, I remember watching that movie with my husband years ago when we were dating. And I was like, Oh my God, this was just what middle school was like. And he's like, that's awful. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was like, I, re- I recalled everything that was going on and it, I can't say it was bullying, bullying. Cause I was never physically threatened, but I didn't like it. It didn't yeah. feel good. And I didn't feel like I was able to be who I was. So I looked for an environment where that felt acceptable. And then even with college, I ended up at Boston University because it was so big. 
you could find your people. You could, right. and that's why I love New York too. Like you're going to find your people, no matter how weird you are, no matter what you're into, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about fitting in to this mm-hmm. certain box. And while I did not have any type of neurodiversity, it really made me understand the concept of like, okay, I have a neurodiverse child and he's being told, oh, you don't fit into this box. Well, then you have to go over here and do this. Well, maybe these boxes are outdated and not really serving people in the way that they're supposed to anyway. So let's see if we can adapt the box a little bit. Mm -hmm. And, (laughs) And I think that certainly discovering yoga around 18 and then dabbling with it. For was a it a college years. course? No, I, my first ever yoga class was during my senior year in high school when we read a passage to India. Oh, and yeah, yeah. One of the yeah. teachers was doing yoga just for her own betterment and taught us all a yoga class. Yeah. And it was cool and I really liked it. And then I went to Boston university and did yoga at the gym for a mm-hmm. couple of years and I liked it. And certainly in Boston, when I was in college, there was kind of this um, yoga scene with the hot yoga, like the Bikram yoga studios and the Baptiste yoga studios were mm, always right. kind of competing and Baron Baptiste was from Massachusetts. So right. it was like, he was, he had his kind of home base right there. Yeah. And so I just started going to different types of classes and seeing what I liked. And I remember my Bikram teacher at the time said, Hey, this guy, David Swenson's coming to town. It was my senior year. He and, recommended um, cross. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He, he was getting curious around, you know, Bikram was starting to feel a little bit weird to him. And he Beyond was like, Bikram. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and props to him. I still keep in touch with him and his wife, who were both my teachers in the very beginning. They were Bikram That's teachers, amazing. but very open-minded and great human beings. And I remember talking to him about David Swenson and he took out the David Swenson practice manual. Right. Yeah. And, I thought, you know, I had done yoga at the gym that was called Ashtanga. Mm. So I thought I had done Ashtanga. <laughs> right. So Finished it. Said, yeah. Right. So he said, I'm going to go to this David Swenson 40-hour training, Yeah, you know, in a couple of weeks. I was like, that sounds cool. I'm going to come. So I signed myself up. I took a week off of my classes in my senior year right before graduation and went to David Swenson's 40-hour training thinking I knew what the primary series was. Yeah. And I turned up there and I knew pieces of it. But mm-hmm. I had never done it properly. Yeah, like Garbhapandasana. Uh, never heard, never, no, never <laughs> Garbhapandasana. Never heard the Sanskrit counts. Never even seen a Chakrasana. And <laughs> yet I was there and I was welcomed. David was wonderful. And yeah. I, was, I was the youngest one there. And a lot of the people had been teaching for a long time. And here I am, this like person who'd been dabbling in yoga. And I would say consistently so like I was a solid four day a week practitioner at least mm-hmm. and I, I could tell there was something here for me with mm-hmm. yoga and I felt like there was more that I was looking for and when I did that week with David Swenson I remember thinking this was really hard and my mind has never felt so quiet mm. in my life I had been getting really intense anxiety attacks Mm-hmm. probably the previous year. And that's why I started doing yoga, even Bikram more consistently because I had a really good doctor at the time. I, we talked about, I didn't want to go on meds for anxiety. She didn't want me to until I tried other things. And I felt like after yoga, I was different. 
And I couldn't articulate it. I didn't know why. I didn't know how it worked. I just knew that I felt different. And so I started going more and more. And my dad took my mom aside one day. And he's like, I don't know what she's doing. Is this yoga stuff a cult? I don't (laughs) know. But she needs to keep doing this because it is good for her. She's different. So that David Swenson week really kind of cemented in like of all the practices that I've tried, this is the one that really makes me feel the most different. Mm. So I'm going to keep doing it. So then I practiced for the rest of my senior year in my dorm room with the practice manual next to me. And, and that was how I became a practitioner. And a year and a half later, you'll think this is really funny. I took my first ever Mysore class at the shala in right my god what were you like what were you that, that took some guts i don't know I think, what did me i meet like, okay. did i meet you then sarah was 2005? that the year we met that was 2005 yeah 2000, that's when we met what were you yeah. what were you studying in school the time uh, marketing and organizational behavior and was your anxiety was it academic related i think it was related to a lot of things i was in the most rigorous academic semester of my college years when it started 9-11 had happened a couple weeks before yeah and certainly going to boston university i had friends who lost parents yeah sitting next to me you know Mm -hmm. when that happened and i think it really just made me think about life and mortality in a different way um i remember like walking a friend out of our classroom to go find a phone to find out if her dad was alive or not like it it was it was really i think one of those moments that in the moment you handle it well my parents are a policeman and a nurse i was raised (laughs) to handle emergencies right yeah but afterwards you're sort of like wait there's something for me to process here and then so i was dealing with that i was in a relationship that was very toxic uh with Mm a boyfriend that was very toxic at the time who i didn't know it at the time but he was verbally abusive and Mm -hmm. um he was from boston he went to school in Boston. He wasn't from uh, Boston. Oh, okay. And, and I, I think that it was just a lot of these things mm-hmm. and my body just, my nervous system was just at a point where it, it, it sent me a message like knock, knock, hello, yeah. time for you to do something. And of course, yoga was the thing that brought me clarity. Mm-hmm. So it was the thing that made me feel like I could, leave that toxic relationship and just be by myself. It was okay to be by myself. It was the thing that made me feel like, you know, I don't need to decide between law school and wall street today. I can just take the summer and work a random job and figure it out. Maybe Mm -hmm. I'll go to my yoga training actually. And that's exactly what happened. And so I, I, it, it really just gave me the clarity that I was searching for, but I didn't know I was searching for it at the time. I was in New York at the at the time, and I I watched yeah. I watched it happen and oh, yeah. the nine eleven, and I remember um, it felt very much like living in suddenly inside of a, a cocoon in New York, yeah. where everyone we were all people who had were experiencing it, and there was yeah. everyone else outside of it was kind of going out on with their lives. I remember like calling my folks in Texas and they were like, yeah, you know, we're, we have, we stopped thinking about it today. It's like, Oh really? Well, we're still thinking about it. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, about a a month later, that airplane um, fell out of the sky and landed on a, on a friend's house actually uh, that I knew. I remember that. 
in Long Island, um, in Brooklyn. And my, I, I, I remember my dad called me that day and he said, uh, Russell, how are you doing? I heard that, that a plane fell near you in Brooklyn. And I just like, yeah, that kind of thing happens here all the time. Dad. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> it's just, it was just such a very wild traumatizing yes. weird time that you're normalizing as immediately. Yes. I remember, you know, talking about it with a friend recently, and this is a friend who I've met in maybe in the last five or six years. And we were talking about like, where were you when that happened? And she's like, I was pregnant with my second at that time and watching the news and telling myself, and she lives in Canada. She's like, everything's fine. Everything's Mm. fine. But I was not fine, but I was telling myself that I was fine so that I could function. Yeah. But I was not fine. And I think, that happened to a lot of people like yeah. just you click into survival mode yeah. and you tell yourself that you're fine to get through it. And then I always noticed that I wouldn't have the anxiety attacks when I was like out with friends or doing things like that. I would have them when I was home trying to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. I would have them when things were quiet. Like if I were sitting in a quiet movie theater, mm-hmm. I, I really think that they were, a way of teaching me how to just be with myself mm-hmm. and be with my feelings and, and process things that I would have probably just pushed down and, mm-hmm. you know, soldiered on. Yeah. It's interesting. Know. I think like with the pandemic and stuff too, I think we're all kind of, I mean, that's a big generalization, but I think a lot of people are experiencing that kind of like post-trauma, you know, effects now because yeah. things how are, weird is yeah, this thing. yeah things are kind of opening up and it's not you know even that things are opening up it's just like for two years you just like weren't processing things and now right. it's like okay well we're it's kind of ending i mean maybe <laughs> hopefully we're, right and we're moving on we're moving on <laughs> whether it's ending or not and so now like there's this space where all these feelings or all this like maybe even fear or anxiety or things that you were just like shoving down before and like getting on with it because there was nothing else to do is now kind of like coming up and I think a lot of people are experiencing you know anxiety now or depression or just like chronic fatigue like their nervous system's like oh my god I just want to sleep for like six months and (laughs) reset yeah yeah and I think that it's great to start just nurturing those conversations around there's nothing wrong with you if you feel like you're exhausted right and are sleeping more than you normally do or taking naps and you normally don't or feel like you've never seen a therapist before but now you feel like you need to like go do those things listen to yourself yeah it's it's not a disorder you're just resetting and healing yeah resetting and healing yeah. 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 Wow. Absolutely. Well, so how do you go from this deeply um, anxious place? So you're tra- probably a little traumatized. And then it's like, I'm going to go to the most fucking crazy place on earth. <laughs> I'm going to go to India. <laughs> how well, does that work at all? There were a few years in between where I was just getting more and more acquainted with the practice. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I lived in Were you in practicing with someone or just by yourself? Yeah. 
I had a practice buddy, um, Stacy Plasky. Ah, uh, Stacy Plasky. Stacy Plasky. I taught her studio, and so we would practice together. Nice between the classes. Yeah, and then a couple of the other teachers would join us, and a couple of the other teachers would join us. You know, slowly, slowly, yeah. our little practice grew, and we were a bit like the blind leading the blind because yeah. none of us had been to Montessori yet. Yeah. But Stacy was the first to go, and she came back. And she was like, you really need to go. I said, okay. And <laughs> so it was one of those things that, or when I told my parents I was going to go, for me, like they were surprised that I was taking this route, but at the same time, they were not surprised because they were like, if you're going to do something, you're the type of person that really does it. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not, if you're going to go to the source to figure this yeah. out and see if it's for you or not, you know? And, and so I went in 2005 and I thought that I was going to go and get it out of my system. Right. right. Like sure. A young woman and I was in love. Like marshmallow fluff. And, just go. Yeah, right? <laughs> marshmallow <laughs> fluff. And I think, I think that my family thought I was going to go have this like eat, pray, love adventure and then come home and be responsible. Like, yeah. Right. Buy a house and have a mortgage and have babies right away and yeah. do that thing. And then good stuff. Yeah. And then a year mm. later, I was like, I think I need to go again. <laughs> right. right. And, and, and yet I wasn't expecting that. It just sort of happened. And, and it happened because I was seeing the practice heal me more and more on so many levels. And, mm. and I felt such a supercharge of that when I was in India that I thought, I'm just going to keep doing this. It's helping me. If it's mm-hmm. helping you, why stop doing it? Right. And, and I think that's how I am still, you know, people ask like, do you practice still, even though you don't teach all the time? Like, of course, practice is my North star. Like why would yeah. I stop something that's helping me so much? Right. Mm-hmm. If this mm-hmm. is not a trend. And, yeah. <laughs> right. And I, I think that, for me that going to India, I didn't know it would be like this, but it really taught me a lot about myself. It was my first time away from the societal systems and structures that I grew up with. And it really just pushed me out of my comfort zone in so many different ways. And I, I was so thankful that I had that experience because it forced me to ask big questions about myself and my life that I don't know if I would have asked at 24 years old mm-hmm. if I yeah. just stayed in my comfort zone all the time. So it was a really beautiful experience amidst the chaos of India with the cows in the road and you yeah. know <laughs> the noise and the dirt on your feet and all of that. It was it was very special. There's something that I love about India too that I think we don't have so much in our culture, but like you know, I think because of the way that their society is and they don't necessarily have like a really great medical system (laughs) in place, you see a lot of things that you don't see in our society, right? Like a lot of different deformities or different like skin sort of conditions or colorations or like bad teeth or like, like just, I mean, all very, I'm just thinking like all very physical things, but people are just treated like nobody's treating them different. Nobody's like reacting to them differently. They're just like talking to them like 
totally normal, right? And yeah. for us, Absolutely. I feel like in Western culture, when people have like different noticeable things, like there's leprosy. always <laughs> yeah, like leprosy mm. or you know, deformities from polio or whatever, right? Yeah. There's always like a little bit of like a oh don't know what to do with this label. Like an energetic kind of like, uh-oh. This is yes. like different. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And also, I mean, you were in India when and I was in India early enough where having to make a phone call was a big yeah. deal. Going yeah. to use internet was a big deal. Certainly, only recently have I had apartments when I go there that have a washer in them. Okay. Yeah. Clothes. Yeah. And right. so I, I remember bucket laundry, you know, and totally. doing that, or having the laundry lady, you know, and yeah. your 10 rupees per piece or whatever it was. And, yeah. and I remember coming home after my first trip and feeling like, wow, what I thought was the real world is not actually the real world. Like I, I remember going into my basement and the little house that we rented at the time and like standing in front of my washer and dryer for a minute and being like, I am thankful for you. I don't know if I even thought to be thankful for my washer and dryer before, because why would I? It's just a yeah. convenience that everyone has. Yeah. But then yeah. when you do your laundry in a bucket for a month and you see people whose job it is to pound laundry. laundry. To yeah. pound laundry, it's just like, oh wow, the little things that I never even noticed before, I will never take for granted again. Yeah. And to what you said too, of like just treating everyone who's around like a regular person. Yeah. I noticed that's how my son likes to be treated. He loves to be around the regular kids at recess and during music class and like all the other things. And he likes, he doesn't care that he's different than they are. He likes to be uh, included in their fun and chaos and the whole mix. That's just what he likes. It makes him, it's a motivator for him. It makes him feel really good. Mm -hmm. And I have noticed this a lot in the last couple of years, because before that he went to a special ed school. Mm-hmm. now he goes to a regular public school and mm-hmm. he's doing so much better in wow. regular public school. he was bored to death in the special right. ed school and not all special ed schools are bad but the one that he was going to was not really attentive to how smart he is mm-hmm. they sort of looped him in with the generalizations they made about kids with his diagnoses mm-hmm. and now that he's in an environment that is more supportive of him and treated like one of the guys he's thriving beyond what anyone thought he was capable of doing. Amazing. And it's, yeah, it's so cool to see that. And I remember it reminds me of, he had a speech therapist when he was little that had a plaque in her office and it said, my teacher thought I was smarter than I was. So I was. And I love that because it, (laughs) I mean, you see that in the yoga room too. Like when you're encouraging your student to do something that's terrifying to them and they think that they can't and you just lovingly guide them and give them the support. And over time they build the confidence and they do this thing that they thought was totally impossible before they start to ask themselves, well, what else? Mm -hmm. What else is possible? (laughs) Maybe I should think about this a little bit. And I think the same is true for people with neurodiversities. And so sure. I'm always looking for those people who are the ones to help them achieve that thing that maybe the general public doesn't think they're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And I have seen this in my life. I have videos of my son doing things that the physical therapist said he had the core strength to never do. Like he'll never do that. And I was hmm. saying, do you want us to take a, do you want to see a video of him doing that? 
or the spe- or a speech therapist in school saying he'll never be able to do this, that, or the other thing, or he can't do that. And I remember being at meetings and saying, I have a one minute video of him doing that. This could affect how we support him going forward. Do you want to see it? And they would say no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. no, because it yeah. didn't match up with the testing on paper that he did or something else. And right. I was like, this is a yeah. bullshit. Sorry, I don't know if, if I can curse on your podcast. You can. <laughs> For fuck's sake, they're, would you not? This is, we have a, our audience is <laughs> not. They're, they're, they were just committed to the labels, the systems that worked for them. They weren't committed to the individual that was right in front of them. So I really feel like that's my job in this world is to help people push back on the boundaries that are imposed on them and say, well, what if we just try? What about yeah. this? Yeah. And, you know, we, one of the things you often hear in America when you're that parent like me, who's asking for things that are not normally given Mm-hmm. is exactly that. Well, that's not normally given to kids with this diagnosis. That's not normally given to things like, you know, with this case or that, you know, delay or whatnot. I'm like, well, what happens if we just give it this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Touch base in three months. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see. And if it doesn't work, we'll stop giving it. But like, why can't we? But I realize a lot of parents aren't even confident enough to ask those questions. They're not confident mm-hmm. enough to be that person who pushes the boundaries and stops people pleasing. So that yeah. is, that is I, uh, my work for a lot of time. I, I have a beautiful. I have a little story, and I I, I don't want to be self glossing like this, but it's 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 I think it's kind of relevant. I was when I was in the fourth grade, my principal told my mother that she wanted me put into the special needs class. That uh, I was develop I was developmentally uh, retarded. I think is how they would have phrased it at the time. Yeah. And uh, my mother was like, no, he's really smart. And I was like, no, we're not seeing that. He's, he's failing all of his classes. And of course I was, you know, my parents were divorcing and there was a lot of chaos. So at home, but what I, we did the California achievement test, which I'm not sure if they do anymore, but that was a big thing when we were in elementary yeah. school and they didn't do it in Canada, of course, because they don't have a, a California in Canada, but <laughs> they did the California achievement test and we took it. And I remember suddenly for the first time really fitting in and enjoy, and like this day was so much fun. I got a little pencil and an eraser and I had it in a test and it had little circles on it and you filled in the little circles. And it was like, this is the best day of school I've ever had. Yeah. And I remember sitting down and like just concentrating and doing everything <laughs> And I got a 98% for the, for the national test. And there was no other kid in um, certainly that school or that county or that part of Illinois that was anywhere close to a 98%. Yeah. And they were, it was like a bomb had gone off at school. Like, <laughs> did he cheat? But there was no one that I could have cheated off of who was anywhere close to my, my score. That's and, wild. And what I had been doing, which no one had really paid attention to, is I had been, I had, I had kept a science fiction book underneath my desk, and that's all I had done the entire year was read <laughs> Robert Heinlein and Piers Anthony and Roger Zelazny, and all I had done all year was read, and had not paid one fucking bit of attention to the teacher, and that's why they thought I was retarded. <laughs> and 
Right. So, so then they put but, me in all of these accelerated classes because I was the best student in Southern Illinois. And again, I failed all of them because I wasn't actually equipped to take right. accelerated courses. I was just really adept. That's very <laughs> different from being equipped. <laughs> That's really wild. Yeah. And I love how mess. when people, you know, that, that's really, really wild. And I, yeah, I think that there's so much here around what inspires a child, what motivates yeah. a child to learn how do different brains learn? Visual learners, tactile, kinesthetic, auditory, mm-hmm. you know, like how do different brains learn? One is not better than the other. Just like kindergarten is not better than 12th grade. Right. We're going to need all of them. But, yeah. but you have to try and figure out, you're not going to teach the kindergarten or what you're learning in 12th grade. So it's the same thing with how people learn and Mm -hmm. oh my god that teacher of yours must have been so boring if you were just reading your books on the desk I'm thinking to myself like you must have been the most uninspired kid in that class yeah who's like this is stupid I just want to do something that's stimulating to me and read your book I probably would have done the same thing (laughs) yeah when you told us that you had read all of uh, Game of Thrones I was wondering maybe if you were that kid (laughs) I, I was the kid I I didn't often read in school, but I would do my homework during class so that I wouldn't have to do it at home. That's so funny that you brought that up because I was just going to bring that up because that's what my son does. He does all of his, he'll skip playing with his friends at lunch or whatever to do all of his homework so that he doesn't have to bring it home. And so then we have parent-teacher interviews and the teacher's like, he really needs to bring his homework home. He shouldn't do it in class. He shouldn't do it at lunch. And I'm like... But he's he's doing 10th grade math at home. So, and then, you know, he does that in half an hour, this Kumon stuff. And then he spends four right. hours doing project management online with his friends. Playing video games. <laughs> video games. I was going to say, I mean, is yeah. he an employee in your organization? Because <laughs> you should, I don't know, you should be very organized and self-motivating. Um, and it's yeah, like, it's like a criticism towards him, right? Like, like, I really need to encourage him to bring home homework. And I'm like, well, I can ask him to bring home homework. But he's, but... you know, he's doing 10th grade math. <laughs> Yeah. And I finally had to tell her like, honey, there's a reason you have recess. You need to move your body. You yeah. need yeah. to get a change of scenery and get fresh air. Even if you're just outside reading about like, and, and she usually goes and plays anyway, but I was like, yeah. you can't use recess time to do your homework unless it's pouring rain out. Right. Mm. And the funny thing is if it's pouring rain out, they still have recess in the gym. That's noisy and like yeah. all the kids are around and the ball's bouncing and the sneakers speaking on the floor. She hates it. Rocco yeah. loves it. No. Loves and oh, yeah. And like is happy as a clam in there. And she's like, oh, it's so noisy. And that yeah. was the same thing about the bus in the morning. She's like, I don't know if Rocco's going to like the bus in the morning. It's too noisy. Yeah, I like, she's I, sensitive. I, I talk to her, but he loves it. So yeah. like, you know, you that's think one of that, those things, the highly sensitive, like, people if it's noisy yeah. like that it's really challenging to mm, feel yeah. good inside <laughs> yeah. you have a yeah i wanted to ask you um i'm trying to understand this you you have a your instagram and you yeah. post episodes on your instagram every couple yes. of days are those are those from a podcast that you do yes i have okay. a podcast called full potential thriving with autism one of the the episodes is yeah. well maybe I should let you explain that a bit further. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. It's a podcast, even though it has autism in the title, any neurodiversity 
would benefit from it. If you're parenting a child with any type of neurodiversity, definitely listen because there are a lot of tools in there that are not the tools that are talked about in schools a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered that there's a whole world around how to build a relationship with a child, how to Mm -hmm. connect socially, how to advocate for your family, how to do all these things that they're not teaching you Mm -hmm. um, in the school settings. So I bring out an episode every week to people who listen and are looking for more tools so that their family can thrive, especially if they're not fitting into the boxes. Fantastic. I saw an episode on your Instagram, uh, a a few of them that were particularly interesting that I wanted to ask about. One of the episode titles was The Real Cost of Raising a Neurodiverse Child. And I wanted to know if, I wanted you, if you could talk more about that here, like what is that cost and what did you mean by that? Well, there are statistics that I took from Autism Speaks organization. And again, these are the people who are raising their hand and talking about it. So I think that there's probably a lot more that's not being talked about, but there are significant costs. I believe that the average family who has a child with autism spends $60,000 a year on autism related things, whether it be the right therapies, medical treatments, um, or those tests for like what you're allergic to. <laughs> right. Um, what we're seeing in the United States is that, you know, how we have health insurance, different mm-hmm. from other countries, a lot of the really great doctors aren't taking health insurance anymore because it pays you for a 10 minute visit when this doctor needs an hour with you. So, well, you know what, even in Canada where we have public health insurance, it doesn't cover right. things like that. Like any special mm-hmm. needs, it's very right. difficult to get coverage for. You basically have to, right. you know, get social services involved or pay for it out of pocket. Right. Some of the costs also that have to be considered are my daughter's 10. I can leave her home alone if I need to run to the store and come right. back. Not a oh. With Rocco, I can't. Yeah. He's just more curious. He'll just get into things that, you know, I think he would be fine, but I don't want to test it and see that's the day he plays with the stove. You know what I mean? So so it requires a lot more of a care team, Mm -hmm. whether it's babysitters or people who support these individuals. And also as kids get older, we want them to have a more independent life that takes time and energy. So Mm -hmm. for example, I can tell my daughter, Hey, pack your school lunch for tomorrow. And she might you know, get distracted once or twice, but she'll do it and does not need any managing. Rocco in the beginning needed someone to like sit here and show him how to, where to go and get the things in the house. Because even though he knows the bread is in the fridge, he's never had to make his own sandwich. So like getting, gathering all the ingredients together, reminding him like, first you're going to open the jars then you're going to like take the bread out of the bag, you know, and, and just showing him step by step by step what you do. This is the boring, unsexy work <laughs> behind the scenes that happens that makes a unique child with delays be an independent adult. And at mm. the same time, you know, parents might need to have a career to pay yeah. bills and you might have to hire people to help you. So there's a lot that goes into parenting a unique child that, you may not always think about also um, unique diets. Keto mm-hmm. bread that I get from my son is 
the most expensive bread that you can possibly oh, find. I right? know. Yeah. Right. We're so, all over so, it. <laughs> right. So the average cost of, of an average family is $60,000 per year. Now factor Jesus. into the, the, the situation that usually one parent quits or cuts down on their job to be a primary caregiver yeah. for a unique child. That's something that also plays into the mix. Parents or mothers specifically who work, and I can't remember the statistic off of my head, but they make, I want to say 30% less if they, they are do. in the workforce because yeah. they are maybe taking more days off or working limited hours when they have a child that just needs them more. So mm-hmm. it's a lot. I and that's on lot. top of women already making like 25 cent less yeah. or 30 cent less than men. So it's right. sort of like exactly. a double, double pay, pay exactly. deduction. <laughs> the amazing thing is yeah. how much more productive women are as workers than men. Exactly. And so it's really getting, you're getting value for money when you hire a woman. <laughs> yeah, totally. And so these are the things that, you know, you may not always think about, but also if you're like me, I, I'm committed to working with the amazing doctor. I'm committed to making sure my son has medical marijuana, which is not covered by insurance. Of course, it's not a federally approved thing. So that's hundreds of dollars a month. So, you know, vitamins and supplements that their blood work might show that they need. Mm -hmm. That's something that you can't just do when you feel like it. It has Mm -hmm. to be consistent. It's hundreds of dollars a month. So these are things that are real concerns. And I have noticed in working with people that, Many of them, even if they can, they have the money now to do something they want to do, they're almost scared to do it because they don't know what they're going to need next month for their kid. What if they have to hire this independent person to evaluate speech or whatever? And so they're always sort of on the lookout for, could there be something that I need to put money into to help my child? Right. And Mm. even things with your house, like, Sure. Rocco is very light sensitive. So we have a finished basement and we put his room down there. It's beautiful rooms, got nice wood floors. We put the venting for the heating and AC in there because he sleeps really well without light coming in. But, you know, in our, when we lived further West, we were like looking for all the different types of curtains and blinds for the house that would (laughs) make his room dark enough that he would sleep well when the sun's coming up at 5 a.m. in Mm -hmm. June. And so things like that that you don't always think about are real needs mm-hmm. when you have a kid who's more sensitive. Yeah. I was wondering if, if you were going to talk about your own emotional energy body, like if, you know, that cost <clears throat> as a parent. Yeah, that's a great, great point. I definitely prioritize my own well-being, and I'm thankful that I had many years of doing that and managing my own energy before I became a parent because I think that I became a parent and then I became a parent to a unique child and then a second child all within the span of 18 months. Right. And yeah. it was a lot. And so I can't say that I would have built habits, spiritual practices at that time. Mm-hmm. I'm thankful that they were already routines that I had and that I prioritized. And, and I, I do, I don't know how woo woo you want me to get with my energy body stuff, but I, I, I can really go there. I, okay. <laughs> I, um, I always felt there was a reason 
for me to have a unique child. And I didn't know what it was, but I have studied enough spirituality in my life. I practice yoga. I've always felt an energetic connection. And I really just trusted that there was a reason this was happening, even if I didn't intellectually know what it was. And I feel like now I'm at the point where I I know what it is. And I feel like this child chose me, chose this path. Mm -hmm. And I've often reminded myself, like he's having the journey he's meant to have on this planet too. And it helped me a lot when I was feeling like I wasn't doing enough or maybe I'd done something wrong. It really helped me tremendously to remember that, oh, wait, he chose this. He chose Mm -hmm. us as parents. He chose this time to incarnate on this planet. He chose to come here to make an impact in whatever way he's supposed to. And for me, in a way, it helped me to take my self-worth out of Mm. our journey together, my journey as a parent, because I think there was a time where my energy was very heavy because I felt like, if Rocco had a bad day, it meant I was worthless. You know, mm. if, if, if he wasn't doing well in school or had a health challenge come up, well, that must mean something about me as a parent. Mm. And I think that even what, well, thankfully I was still doing yoga at that time. It, it felt really intense and it made me ask a lot of questions about, you know, God and energy and spirituality and purpose. Like, why is this happening? I trust it's here for a reason, but really, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm thankful that through practice, um, I work with a shaman, a real shaman. You're not going to Google him and find him. Um, <laughs> he's a, a real legitimate shaman. Um, and he's really helped me a lot in recent years and reminding me of the journey that Rocco was taking on this planet too. And, mm, and, beautiful. It, and I feel like we're able to sort of take our journey side by side and support each other in that beautiful way. And I'm not tangling myself up in what his journey means about me. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It must be such a, such a big journey to like transition from that place where you're really questioning your enoughness even. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And feeling like you could never be enough to support this being. Yeah to moving into the space of, of you're doing your work and they're also doing their work. Yeah. It started to click with me a few years ago, you know, in Montauk where we live and where we surf all summer, there's a lot of kooky people. That's why we love it. Be your kooky self and you don't need to fit in and we love mm-hmm. it. And so Ben and Rocco always surf together. Ben taught Rocco how to swim. He taught Rocco how to surf. And one day he walked down the beach after surfing. It was a beautiful day. And he's like, Hey, I bumped into this guy as we were surfing and he wants to make a documentary about me and Rocco. And I thought he's just one of the kooks at the beach, probably <laughs> smoked a little pot at sunset time. Like that's, an, that's nice, honey, but whatever. I didn't think anything of it. <laughs> yeah. And then I met this guy the next week and I was like, Oh no, he actually is a legitimate film producer. No. <laughs> I to hear what he has to say. And then there started to be talk about making a documentary about Rocco. And now all the while behind the scenes, I'm like, I love Rocco. I think he's amazing, but 
aren't all parents like me? Don't all parents like empower their children? Don't all parents like, get mm-hmm. their kid in the water and teach them how to do things and teach them how to be confident? And I just, I didn't have a reference point. Mm-hmm. And there's a surf therapy event that happens every September in Montauk. And Kevin, the film producer said, you know, Sarah, I really want you guys to come to this surf therapy event. It's very important. And I said, thank you, Kevin, but I know the spots are limited. Rocco surfs with us every day, every weekend. I want someone else who never gets to surf to take that spot. And he's like, hello, that's not why I want you to come. (laughs) I want you to come so that other parents can see that you're happy and that your kid is happy and that you're thriving and that you're having fun together and that Mm. life is not this heavy, stressful thing. And you can be confident and you can, as a parent, have your own life and, and that they can do this too. And it wasn't until then that I thought, oh, maybe I am doing something right. Maybe mm-hmm. I am figuring <laughs> it out. And yeah. I attribute it to my practice, giving me the strength to show up every day in my life and handle the things that need to be handled. And then shortly thereafter, I was planning to write a book. I sat down to outline it and I thought it was going to be like the how-to business manual for yoga teachers. And what came out was a spiritual book for special needs parents. Amazing. Oh, that's interesting. It will be published this summer. And, What's it called? Um, Do you have the title? Don't, I'm, I'm not nailed on the title yet. Okay. I'm still, I'm still, but I, I will let you know as soon as it comes out. Um, and I'm at the stage where I'm talking with the book designers and doing that whole thing. Um, yeah, it takes some time. But yeah, but it wasn't until that book came out that I thought, maybe this is really my dharma and I love yoga and it will always be something that's very important to my life, but maybe I'll just do a little less of that and I'll test this out a little bit. Maybe I do have something to share mm. with these families. And I had a lot to share. And the <laughs> yeah. more I'm in the community is the more I realize, like, Oh wait, this is really special. What I've done with my child. Yeah. I just assumed everyone was, doing that. And I realized it's not the case at all. And so I feel really honored to support families and, and get them out of survival mode because they're living in that space mm-hmm. all the time and help them find a place where they can have a lot more joy in their lives. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think that's some, it sounds so simple to say it, but now that we just got the final edit of Rocco's documentary, that's going to film festivals soon. Mm-hmm. As my book's getting ready to come out, I was like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Now I get why this had to happen to me. Now I get why I had the unique child. This is all making sense now. My mm-hmm. genre, it all makes sense. And so we watched the final edit of the documentary the other day, just got it on Monday, Sunday or Monday. It was, it's perfect. We cried. And Ben's like, remember those nights you used to lay in bed and be like, but why is this happening? Yeah. I, was like, yeah, I do. I remember them. And when it felt really intense and really traumatic for me, those moments where I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of bed tomorrow. You guys will relate to this because you've chanted the yoga sutra, but I have a beautiful <laughs> teacher here who I chant the yoga sutra with. And I remember I would start hearing the sutra chanting in my head. Mm. And I remember telling her that. And she said, you know, I'm so glad that you said that, but that's what it's for. You ever think of the phrase that an idle mind is a devil's workshop instead of letting your mind go to all the bad places, give it something beautiful. 
or mm-hmm. grounding or centering to think about. And I remember like laying in bed and thinking like, oh, I'll be okay now. And I remember getting up the next morning thinking like, oh, I can't do this. And remembering that my <laughs> practice buddies were at the shala waiting for me. So I was like, oh, fine. I just threw the yeah. covers off. I'm like, you know, got in the shower and drove there like a zombie would mm-hmm. do my practice just out of years of conditioning. That's all it was. And then I would finish and I would feel like, okay, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And it was like one day at a time, one practice at a time, one step at a time that really allowed me to get out of that survival mode place and mm. now feel like, oh yeah, of course it had to be this way. It all makes sense. It's just so powerful. Like, yeah, you have such a, I mean, what you're offering to the world and to families and to women who don't have that kind of get practice. A, would you get a grip, please? Get a fucking grip, Harmony. <laughs> fucking no, it's pro- so be emotional. a fucking yeah, professional. This is a professional show. <laughs> It's so powerful. It's so it's so important. It's just like yeah. it's so important, you know. And and it's so beautiful to to have this full circle for you where where nothing makes sense and you're just like why the fuck me? Like what did I do wrong? But really yeah. you just did everything right, you know? Yeah. And you just really Oh, fuck no. I'm getting I know. <laughs> <laughs> you really like great. We'll do. Mm. Yeah. To, to bring this light and, and to share this light. And you're in a place now to help other people find a practice, to find the strength, to find that peace. And it's just so, it's so moving. It really is. Thank you. You know, there are times where parents will come to me and say, hey, I have this meeting coming up. Can you show me how to advocate so that my kid gets what he needs? And then there yeah. are other times where parents come into my inbox and they're like, I need to know how to take care of myself. I have so yeah. much stress in my life and all, all are welcome. Yeah. We, we can look at all the things, but I think that any parent, no matter the type of child that you have, it's important to remember that your child is only going to thrive as much as you thrive. You can feed them all the right food and not let them watch too much TV. But if they're feeling your stress mm-hmm. all the time, they're absorbing that. Kids are really very, very perceptive. Even if you're not telling them that you're stressed out, they're going to know. And so I think to anyone listening, those emotions that are reverberating off of you into your house, into every person Mm -hmm. and dog and cat that lives there, those are real. And it's worth taking the time and the energy to manage yourself because whether you realize it or not, it's also going to manage everyone else in your house. Yeah, yeah. it's it's true. The, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation did a uh, um, a large scale study on uh, teachers, mm. and it's demonstrable that when teachers are suffering high levels of daily stress, that the the marks of the child of the children, um, yeah. even within the same school, are worse than the other teachers. So if you I can if you can manage stress you know just by remembering to take a deep breath once in a while it will have a a market a remarkably impactful effect on your children i think it points to the fact too and and i was thinking about this with your son earlier when you're you know saying that he has this label of nonverbal, but like so much i forget the percentage but there's there's studies out there someone can google it i'm sure um like i'm just gonna throw out a number like 90 percent of communication is actually 
nonverbal communication, yeah. right? And so yeah. everything you're saying, like like the vibration we're giving off, the the nonverbal cues in our face, in our body um, posture, in our breath, in you know all of those things are communicating to everyone around us all the time. And um, you know your son understands. He he knows exactly what's going on. And if you're tuned yeah. in like you are to him of course, you know, what's going on with him because like 90% of it is nonverbal actually at the end of the day. Absolutely. But in order to tune in, right. I love that I'm using tune in now because of the intonato, but Mm -hmm. in order to tune in to, to picking up all of those cues and all of the nonverbal communication that is actually telling you everything you need to know, you also have to be in a space where you're like, able to calmly reside to pick it up right? you have to fill the well you can't just yeah. empty the well every day you have to fill it up yeah, yeah. it's sort of a domino effect of yeah. first you have to be fully present with yourself mm-hmm. so that you can be fully present with those around you especially a unique child children will call you out if you're not present <laughs> with them they're going to say mom get off your phone you know or whatever yeah, they'll yeah, let yeah. you know they're good <laughs> teachers they don't tolerate any crap no. <laughs> and then after you are present with yourself and then with the people around you, especially with your children, you can start to really build a relationship with a unique child from that state of presence. Only when you have that can you really be a confident advocate for your child. I meet so many parents who go into meetings and feel like they just settle for whatever the experts in the meeting are saying they should do for their kid, even if their gut tells them no, because Mm -hmm. at home, there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of stress. They are not connecting with their child and they feel like, how can I tell school what to do? I don't even feel good about what's happening in my living room Mm -hmm. and I don't know what to do about it. And so they just kind of brush along, even when they know it's not right. They don't know, they, they don't have the confidence. And so it's like you said, it's scaled all the way back. Start with just being present with yourself and then take that presence as far as it can take you. Yeah, it's so beautiful. I wanted to mention, I don't know if you've read, did you ever read Martha Beck's book, Expecting Adam? No. You should, you should read it. I'm pretty sure that's her book. After this podcast today. Yeah, yeah. We're we're the book recommenders. I'm pretty sure it's, it's Expecting Adam. It was written in 1999 and it was her own journey. She has a son with Down syndrome and and they uh, did testing early and, you know, she was advised to abort because, you know, he had Down syndrome and anyway, it's her own journey, but she, yeah. she ended up asking the doctor, you know, will he be able to experience joy? And the doctor's oh. like, yeah, of course he will. And she's like, that's it. Like, we're good. Yeah, we're good. Neighbor, we're good. I have a neighbor here in Montauk who has Engelman syndrome. She's 20. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, Disorder that has more uniform delays, um, unlike autism being a really wide spectrum, Engelman syndrome is more specific and verbal challenges are high on the list of challenges that these people have. And I was speaking with my neighbor's dad about it. And, you know, we were just talking one day as parents and he, we were just, I noticed that my neighbor was the most joyful young woman. Yeah. Joyful happy smell. And so I was looking up Engelman syndrome because I thought I should really educate myself in case I have people come to me with 
concerns about their child who has this syndrome. So I was educating myself about it. And one of the common characteristics of people with Engelman syndrome is that they're unusually prone to happiness. Oh, what kind beautiful? of disorder is that? That's beautiful. Right? That's not a fucking disorder. What a gift. And, you know, it really made me think, like, who's to say that the normal functioning person over here who's miserable every day yeah. is a better member of society than someone who might look and act differently and communicate differently, mm-hmm. but brings more of a joyful vibration into the world. Yeah. I would hire that person. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 100%. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read that. Thank you. That's fascinating. Yeah. I think you'll, I think you'll really enjoy it. She's an amazing author. She has so many incredible books, but I thought that that one might speak to you specifically. Well, I really want to thank you for sharing. Yeah. Tell us, tell us and all of the listeners or viewers, um, your, yeah, your website, how they can your, reach out to you. Instagram. I, I know so many women families these days it seems like there's more neuro i don't know if it's just more awareness around neurodivergency or well one in six kids is diagnosed with something these days yeah that's so like it, more beings very, coming yeah. into the world with it so yeah. <laughs> yeah the best way to find me now my website is under construction as we speak and will be done very soon um okay. i will give you guys a free guide for parents that you can pop the link into the show notes, Beautiful. Oh, how to advocate, how to advocate for your child amidst a pandemic, because we've seen with the pandemic, a lot of regression, kids have not been getting mm-hmm. what they need a mm-hmm. lot of time yeah. and parents don't know how to make up the challenges that they've been facing and, and improve their child situation. So that's a great read. Even if you don't have a neurodiverse kid, because at some <laughs> point you're going to have yeah. to have a conversation with someone, a doctor, a family member where you need to advocate for your kid. So I'll give you that link and people can, can have it in their inbox. And that's the best way. Um, otherwise, follow me on Instagram, Sarah at Sarah in dot Intonato. And I'll, I'll give you the link too for that, for your show notes. And Beautiful. I share all my podcast episodes there. I yeah. share different things that I'm working on there. I'll share the Rocco documentary when it comes out really soon on there. Yeah. And, that's and your book too. And my book. Yep, yeah, for sure. So lots of things happening. And I really was committed to getting the book finished because I know it's a resource that you could go to your library and get, right? Mm -hmm. So no matter where you are in your life, I wanted people to have a way to start. Mm -hmm. And so that's really my motivation with the book. And certainly I hope that people receive from it in whatever way helps them the most in their life. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure it's got so many, so much good guidance. And like you say, I think these days we could all use um, a coach, someone who's helpfully supportive to help us advocate for ourselves or for our loved ones. Um, You know, it's, I mean, even if your child isn't neurodivergent, sometimes you have to, you know, you have to be a strong, a strong advocate for them. You know, I remember Jediah was even having like some stomach issues and like not digesting things proper. I had to like yell at the doctor, basically. She's like, nothing's wrong with him. I'm like, there's something wrong with him. Right. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. really difficult. Nobody knows, no one knows your child better than you. This is yeah. what I keep telling parents. Stop giving your power away to all these experts who see your kid for an hour a day. No one knows your child better than you. So what needs to happen so that you can feel confident and really 
standing in your power, like you did saying, there is something not right with my child and we have to figure it out. I don't care what you say. Mm -hmm. That's how I want all parents to feel like they can do that in any setting that they need to. Yeah, totally. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you so much. It was just such a joy and a pleasure to speak with you. Pleasure was mine. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in